Good morning. Welcome to 91.1 FM, 90.1 FM in the Catskills, Rockland County, 91.9 on the FM dial, around the world on the web, jmtheam.org. It's Thursday, nine days format on this uh, July 23rd, the 7th of Menachem Av. Tisha B'Av is Shabbos, and of course we observe it on Saturday night and Sunday. The year 5775, 71 degrees, sunshine, high temperature of 86. I, I discuss sometimes with, uh, <laughs> I know this, well, whatever. Let's just say uh, occasionally I'll get into a conversation with somebody about what the perfect weather is or should be, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I'll tell you, today is close. In this area, for especially for the New York City, New Jersey area, Today is close. This might be the best you can get. 71, 57% humidity, which is amazing. Winds at two miles an hour. I'm telling you. Very impressive. Whoever took care of this weather forecast certainly had me in mind. Uh, sunny today with a high of 86. Tonight, clear skies, a low 68. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, a high 86 degrees. Yerushalayim is heading up to 95 up in Guilford, New York, where I believe it's intercamp day with Camp Masora and a whole bunch of other camps, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, they're at uh, 50 degrees, heading up to 78 later on with partly cloudy skies. I, I, I usually don't break at this point during the show, but uh, I don't know, because of the format we're in and because I'm anxious to address a couple of things that happened yesterday. I have uh, opened up the microphone, so to speak, and we'll get to Rabbi Wine and his lecture about the land of Israel coming up. Um, what, what can I say? Uh, the uh, the community, uh, I don't want to say the Jewish community, because I saw a lot of, uh, a lot of members of uh, non-Jewish uh, communities as well. Uh, the community at large did a really good job yesterday, and uh, I think we should be very proud, those who were there for the rally in Times Square. Uh, the numbers were really good. I think the impact was uh, quite impressive. Not quite sure how the NYPD or the organizers decide to set things up. I, I don't know how that works. Um, I thought Times Square meant, you know, north of 42nd in what we really know as Times Square. Uh, this was 42nd Street and South, which... Um, made it a little bit different than expected. It wasn't like the streets were packed with people. It was the sidewalks that were packed with people for a couple of blocks down on uh, 7th Avenue and, uh, you know, west of Broadway. So that was, uh, it was a little different than I expected in terms of that. And in terms of impact, I think that may have had somewhat of a uh, an effect on the effectiveness of the rally. But all right. 
it is what it is. A couple of things, you know, we will never ever stop praising and thanking the NYPD. We will never stop praising and thanking them. But a couple of things yesterday in terms of the just being there and, and watching the logistics were baffling to me. Just baffling. Now, I know that they know their system a lot better than I do, so I'm sure it was good reason. But it was just, it, it seemed really baffling. But anyway, um, so the, uh, so kudos go out to the speakers and to those who inspired a lot of people to continue the battle against this, um, against this deal. Um, I don't remember the exact, uh, number that I was given. It was, uh, I think maybe 13 members of the U.S. Senate and 43 members of the United States House of Representatives that are needed to, to, um, to be swayed, that are needed to be influenced to vote no for this deal. Uh, there was a lot of mention of specific members of the United States government. A lot of mention of, uh, Senator Schumer, whose decision we all await with bated breath. Actually, we're awaiting any type of statement on, uh, aside from his original statement that he's studying the deal. Um, we're awaiting any type of statement from Senator Schumer regarding this deal at, at this point, you know, in terms of what direction he'll go in. Um, and others as well were, were, were cited. And I thought it was uh, pretty well organized, thought the speeches were pretty good, and, uh, you know, I thought it was very effective. They estimated at one point they announced 10,000 people, at one point they announced 12,000 people. I don't think those are numbers that are difficult to believe if you were there in the crowd yesterday. And if you tried to get into a kosher restaurant afterwards yesterday, <laughs> I think it's believable <laughs> that, that, uh, that there were those, uh, that there were that many people there. Um, two things I gotta say, and I regret that I bring one of them up because I think the best way, the best way to deal with, with this group is to completely ignore them. And I, it, something happened yesterday that just does not allow me to ignore them. Um, we know that there is a group, uh, that dresses like a traditional Jews who seem to show up at all these demonstrations, and they have an alternate uh, point of view compared to the majority of the crowd. Did I say that in a, uh, in an, in as inobvious a way as possible? Um, so this group, and anybody who was following me on Twitter yesterday saw exactly my feelings. This group was, for whatever reason, anytime I observe an opposition group or, or any time my point of view is in the opposition to a rally going on in New York. Usually, and again, this is just based on my, you know, uh, anecdotal evidence. Usually, the opposition is placed, is encouraged by the NYPD to be at least a couple of blocks away from the main stage of the rally, of the protest, of the demonstration. Usually. In fact, in some cases, and this was noted, I'll never forget, during the uh, Republican National Convention, uh, 2004, uh, in New York City, uh, in, in cases like that, if you have a, if you're trying to take your uh, grievance to the street, you're going to be placed many, many blocks away from the uh, center of activity. And again, that whether it's justified or not is not my point. My point is that's what usually happens. Uh, they try to, you know, really separate that small group from the crowd. And uh, in this case, uh, those who are noticeably Jewish and uh, are pro-Iranian, are proud to be pro-Iranian, 
are proud to identify with the Iranian government. Uh, in this case, they were treated like VIPs, and I would not say it if I didn't see it with my own eyes. They had the best seat in the house, as far as I'm concerned. About 200 feet from the stage, directly right in the center of 7th Avenue. Uh, it, it was... And and before that, they had the nerve to put them right next to a large group of people that was, you know, there for the protest. At least, you know, separate them from from that group. I, I was I was outraged. I was really outraged. And uh, I, I know a lot of people there were. And anybody who was near that area, if you were at forty one and seven, then I'm sure you felt the same way. Eventually, they were removed. And um, I don't know. Again. God bless the NYPD, and I am sure that they have a method to their madness, so to speak, as the expression goes. Um, but I don't know if uh, if it's if it's them or the mayor's office or who that came up with that idea. But it was it was really troublesome, really troublesome. Um, so that was one observation on a much much different, very positive and extremely inspiring note. And I think I'll mention this tomorrow when Malcolm's on. Uh, he'll join us 7.40 tomorrow morning for the weekly update. Uh, on a much, much different note, and it's such an inspiring note, apparently, according to the, to the word that I got, I was standing, um, with the lovely Stacy Siegel. We were standing about uh, 50 feet away from a group wearing red shirts. Uh, holding up signs, and uh, when I paid more attention, it became obvious where they were from, and then somebody next to me pointed out what they were doing there. Um, there was a group of uh, 50 people that got on a bus from Columbus, Ohio, uh, apparently at the urging of Mr. Jay Schottenstein, who is legendary for his community activities, uh, for Columbus, Ohio, and uh, at 4.30 in the morning yesterday, busted to New York City. Yeah, they went by bus to New York City, and they got there, and they had a great spot. Um, understandably so, they were there pretty early, <laughs> uh, and they had a wonderful spot, and they were uh, they were noticed and appreciated all the way from Columbus, Ohio. Those of us <laughs> who who think twice about going to the rallies or not, <laughs> because of inconvenience, they traveled many many hours on the bus to be there at the demonstration, and then of course. After the demonstration, they, they may be, they may be getting back to Columbus right now. Seriously, they may be, they may be crossing the county line right now in Ohio. Um, so they got right back on the bus after the rally. So, uh, Kalakavod, it was so inspiring, so nice, so incredible to see that people came from far and wide. And I saw a lot of people from New York and New Jersey, a lot of different, a lot of Long Island people. Really a, a great crowd. Um, but to see Columbus, Ohio with a bus full of people at a rally like this, and I say like this meaning that, you know, this wasn't a march on Washington, this was a, this was a thousands strong rally in New York City, but they came out and it was just great. And, and again, with the, with no summer camps coming in, understandably, and no schools in session, obviously, middle of the summer, uh, on a weeknight, to pull the type of crowd that the organizers got yesterday, I thought was spectacular. Spectacular. So call a vote. Anybody who came out, you were noticed. You were noticed. And a big thank you to all the listeners who said hi. It's always great to uh, unite with everybody at these types of events. 16 minutes after 6 o'clock, it's AJM in the AM Thursday morning, and I thank you for tuning in. 
Uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine has been, as usual, inspiring us with his incredible accounts of Jewish history and his wonderful words throughout the entire period of the nine days. And today, uh, this is a lecture that we actually began late yesterday, but I'd love to play it in its completion if we could do it. And I think we can get it done before 7.30 this morning. Um, Rabbi Beryl Wine has a lecture entitled The Land of Israel, and it's part of his Jewish Values series. And uh, speaking about inspiring and remembering our national mission, it's simply remarkable. Information about Rabbi Beryl Wine's uh, lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Tonight's uh, topic uh, deals with Eretz Israel as a value. Now, and I'm talking as a... Uh, political statement or as an idea of uh, Jewish nationalism but as a religious value because this entire series deals with values and the value of Eretz Israel as uh, an idea uh, is one of the most supreme values in all of Torah and all of the Jewish people I read an article uh, before Yom Yushalayim written by the chief rabbi of Haifa, Rav Shor Yashuv Cohen, uh, who uh, the thrust of the article uh, was a remembrance of his experiences in Yushalayim. He was captured in the 1948 war. He spent nine months in the Jordanian prison camp, lost part of his leg. Uh, and he writes about his experiences uh, regarding Yerushalayim over the past 57 years. But one of the things that he pointed out is, uh, and he said it very clearly, he said that Medinat Yisrael, the state of Israel, is meant to be a conduit, is meant to be a means to achieve Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel. And in other words, that the state and our nationalism and everything that we have accomplished, that's not the end, that's only the means. And the means, uh, he quotes naturally from his father, the Nazir, and uh, from Rav Kook, uh, that the physical rebuilding of the Jewish people is a necessary prerequisite for the spiritual rebuilding of the Jewish people. But it is not... The end, the end is that spiritual rebuilding, as he calls it, it's the rebuilding of Eretz Israel, and not just of Medina Israel. So we speak about Eretz Israel here as a value, as one of the ideas uh, that has been constant throughout Jewish history. And it's been constant, it's interesting whether the Jewish people were here in the land of Israel, or whether they were in the diaspora, in the exile. Because uh, we see in the Nevi'im, uh, the Nevi'im always speak about how does Eretz Yisrael react uh, to the behavior of the people who live there. As though Eretz Yisrael is a living thing. It's not a passive piece of land, but it's a living organism. And this living organism reacts to what happens on it, around it, through it, and that that's the value, uh, that's the idea of what Eretz Yisrael represents. 
Now, the Jewish people spent most of their history outside the land of Israel. Uh, we're a people that are uh, 33, over 3,300 years old from Yitzhak Mitzrayim, and most of the time we have not been here. And whenever we have been here, uh, it has not been sweetness and light. There were periods, good periods, the period of Dovid HaMelech, the period of Shlomo HaMelech, 80 years. Then it started to fall apart. Uh, in the time of uh, the second temple, the period of the Hashmanoim, so the first hundred years uh, was a good time, and then it fell apart. And it's been a difficult, difficult situation always regarding living in the land of Israel. And the reason for that is because we are trying to translate a spiritual value into an everyday life, into a state that has to function, into all of the problems of everyday living. It's much easier to deal with it as an imaginary thing, because then you never have any disappointments, and you don't have to worry about it, and you don't have to collect taxes, and you don't have the, the whole problem. But how do we make it work practically uh, that is a major challenge, and that challenge has faced the Jewish people every time they've been here in the land of Israel. So we find that uh, during the time of Yoshua and the Shoftim, so during the time of Yoshua, the Jewish people still were afraid of Yoshua because they still were afraid of Moshe. Moshe had such a lasting influence upon them that as long as Yoshua was here, they still thought that Moshe was here. But when Yoshua died, so then Vayibi Shvota Shoftim, we read now in the Megillah of Ruth. Shvota uh, Shoftim Rashi says the judges were judged. The Jewish people said, in effect, Miata, who are you to tell me to do anything? Everybody did whatever they wanted to. It was the ultimate pluralistic society. Do whatever you want. So then it's chaos falls apart. So then God has to remind them that they're Jews, right? So he sends the Plishtim, he sends the Amalekim, he sends the Knanim. All sorts of problems. And it takes time until David HaMelech comes on the scene uh, that the situation somehow becomes ameliorated. Now it becomes livable. And uh, during the last years of David, the last 20 years of David, and the first 25, 30 years of Shlomo HaMelech, so then it is finally what Eretz Yisrael is supposed to be. And they build a temple, and everything is wonderful. But people, especially the Jewish people, cannot stand prosperity. They cannot stand that everything should be wonderful, so they have to make it not so wonderful. And Shlomo wanders away, and then there's a rebellion and Yerovim ben Nevot and then they split into two kingdoms and then they become idolaters and pagans and that's the story so because of that Eretz Yisrael is the most sensitive topic to discuss and I hesitated to put it down on the sheet as one of the values to discuss because I'm well aware that whatever one says uh can unfortunately be subject to misinterpretation 
and also because it's so sensitive, because we're living here and we're part of it, and therefore we feel it perhaps differently than in the theory of Eretz Yisrael. The Gemara says, Gimul Matonos Nosan HaKadosh Baruch Yisrael. God gave us three gifts. And all three come with great pain. The three gifts are Torah. If you want to be a Talmud Chacham, if you want to study Torah, then it's sacrifice, it's Yisurim, it's uh, giving up hours and time. If you really want to be a great Talmud Chacham, so then it requires an enormous amount of concentration, willpower, it's Yisurim. It's not easy. Anyone who has ever opened the Daf Gemara and looked at it, is the page itself is sufficient to dissuade you from going further. That three different fonts on the page, it's, uh, it's written in a language that uh, very difficult for us. We don't speak Aramaic anymore. And then you have Rashi on one side, and Tosas on the other side, and then you have uh, the Rosh in the back, and nobody agrees on anything with it. It's Biyasurian. If you want to accomplish something, then you have to pay for it. The second thing the Gemara says is Eretz Yisrael. Eretz Yisrael comes Biyasurian. It's a matona. So look at the language of the Talmud. The language of the Talmud is that it's a gift. Meaning we're not entitled. The language of matona is always that you're not entitled. It's a gift. There are certain things in life that we think we're entitled to. But there, the Talmud, when it says Matona, so you're not entitled to be a Talmud Chochem, you have to earn it. You're not entitled there to Israel, you have to earn it. How do you earn it? But you're Surin, right? And we can all testify what that means. The Jewish people for over the past hundred years here in Eretz Israel, every day is Yisurim. Every day is problems. Every day is blood. Every day is all of the difficulties that we're so well aware of. And the greatest Yisurim is that you don't see any way out of it. That's, you know, as long as you see a way out of it, then people, uh, people uh, almost are happy to absorb the Yisurim. But Yisurim on end, with no way out, so that already is a different level of pain. And the third gift that Gemara says is Olam eternity, immortality. So you only gain that also through sacrifice. You only gain that also through willing to undergo sacrifice and pain. So because of that, we have this great concept that Eretz Yisrael has to be earned. Now you have another concept that God promised it to us. He told us from the beginning, He told Avram Avinu, I'm giving you this land, it's going to be yours. He told it to Yitzchak, He told it to Yaakov, He's told it to us from the beginning of time. This is your land, I'm giving it to you. The only thing is that when it comes uh, to the bottom line, uh, it's not our land. Avram Avinu wants... uh, to bury his wife Zora. So he has to buy the Morasamachpela from the Bene Ches from Ephron for, for an enormous amount of money. The Rashi there quotes the Medrash that says Avram 
The greatness of Avram was that he didn't say to God, but you promised me, you said it's my land. What do you mean i got to pay him 400 shekel over La Socher, the best mint coins? You promised it to me. And Yitzchak digs wells all over the country, and all the wells the Philistines uh, take over. They stop them up. They throw them out. And the Yitzchak does not say, but you promised me that the land is mine. And Yaakov Avinu, when he comes back from Lovon, so he has to buy the land by Shem. And he doesn't say again, you know, God, you promised me. You told me it would be mine. So that's part of the definition of Yisurin. Yisurin is when you have to buy and sacrifice for what is yours. What belongs to you already. You have to start all over again. Which is in essence what happened to the Jewish people over the last hundred years. Whether it be through uh, the Karen Kayemet or through private funds or whatever, or purchase, you, you have to buy it all over again. Because of the fact that that's Eretz Yisrael and Nikmus be Yisurin. So we have to be prepared for that. We have to realize that on one hand it's ours, it was promised to us by God, and God's promises are valid. God's contract has never defaulted. And on the other hand, uh, we have to earn it, we have to buy it, we have to fight for it, we have to bleed for it, it's not ours. And that balance, uh, that contradiction almost, uh, lies at the heart of the Yisurian of Eretz Yisrael. Now, the Talmud has very, the Talmud is very, very pro Eretz Yisrael. Let's put it that way. And the Talmud, uh, has almost a hidden anger, and this is the Babylonian Talmud, let alone the Yerushalmi, the, uh, Talmud that was written in Eretz Yisrael. The Talmud has almost a hidden anger at people that don't come to Eretz Yisrael when they have an opportunity to do so. When the Jewish world had an opportunity to do so. The Gemara says, for instance, by Ezra, that at the time of Ezra, most of the Jews stayed in Bavel. They didn't come back. And the Talmud says, Ilu olu kachoma, if they would have come up in waves, they would have, if they would have come home, then the second temple would have had all of the spiritual glory and miracles that the first temple had. But because the Jews didn't want it, so God said, okay, so you don't want it, I, I don't want it either. They didn't come back. And throughout the history of the Second Temple, there were tremendous uh, Jewish communities all over the Mediterranean basin, in Rome, in Greece, in Bovell, in, uh, uh, in Egypt, in Alexandria. And the rabbis always held that against them. And therefore the rabbi said, for instance, Bamachashakim Hoshivani Hashem, the Lord has made me dwell in darkness, Zu Talmudo Shalbovel. That's the Babylonian Talmud. The Babylonian Talmud, which the Gemara speaks about itself, is darkness because it was composed in Bovel. And uh, Bovel uh, had a very, very high spiritual state. 
great Talmidei Chachomim, great yeshivas, a great Jewish community. So let me just quote to you a few Gemaras. Because the Gemara says that the land itself has a holiness to it. The land itself has a holiness to it. It's called Eretz HaKodesh, the holy land. So you don't hear it so much amongst Jews, but in the non-Jewish world they still call it the holy land. Eretz HaKodesh, the land itself has holiness, independent of who is there, and independent of how people behave there. The land itself is holy. So the Gemara says, an interesting Gemara, Rabbi Brokio, Rabbi Lezer ben Pedos, Hoyumetailin Derech Shar Tveria. Two of the Talmidim of Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan had the great yeshiva in Tveria in the third century. So two of his Talmidim, Rabbi Brokio and Rabbi Lezer ben Pedos, uh, they were uh, taking a walk by the Yam Kinneret, by uh, the gate to Tveria. Now, in the ancient world, in the time of the Talmud, Tveria, as today, was a great burial ground. Had large Jewish cemeteries. The uh, great hill uh, on which the tomb of Rebmeir Balanes perches on top, that whole hill is a cemetery. It has thousands and thousands, if not tens of thousands of graves in it. Because... The cemeteries at the time of the Talmud were caves that were dug into the side of the mountain and that uh, because of the shortage of land, uh, they uh, let the body decompose for a year and then they collected the bones and put them in an ossuary in a ceramic jar and that jar they put in in the cave and then they had room to bury again. It was a uh, different system than we are accustomed to. In any event, they are at the gates of Tveria, and they see they're bringing bodies from Chutzlaretz, right, to be buried in Eretz Yisrael. So here we have two different opinions. And the two opinions are very sharply stated. And you can hear them both today as well. They resonate in our world. Omar lo rabrokio mahoilu elu. Who needs them? What value are they coming now to get buried here? Bechayehem heinichu osi. When they were alive, they didn't come. They weren't interested to live in Eretz Israel. Ubemisosom bola. And now they come. When he has corpses, I say that this posik refers to them. That's My country, my land, the land of Israel, you treated it abominably. That was while you were alive. You didn't come. And now you have come and you have defiled my country because a mace brings with it, Tuma brings with it defilement, the misaskem. So he's not very happy. He didn't come, he said, who needs you now? Omar lo Rabbi Elezer, so Rabbi Elezer ben Pedos said to him, no, 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 you're wrong. Lohi. It's not correct. 
Kivan Shehem Nigborim Beretz Yisrael, since they will be buried in the land of Israel, Veniten Lahem Gush Ofor Shel Eretz Yisrael, and they will have the dust, the dirt of Eretz Yisrael will cover their bodies. Mechaperes, it brings forgiveness to them. It says, V'chiper ad Mosel Amo. Moshe Rabbeinu said, The land of Israel is a kapora for the people. And therefore, uh, if uh, they come even to be buried, so then the holiness of the land is such that that fact that they're buried here is alone sufficient to bring forgiveness for all their sins. Now, uh, we realize uh, that throughout the ages, the Jews desired to be buried in Eretz Israel. And they came, their bodies were brought from far distant countries in order to be able to be buried in Eretz Israel. And one of the few uh, uh, permissible uh, times when a body can be exhumed and reburied is when the body is taken from outside Eretz Israel to be reburied in the land of Israel. That's because the land itself is holy. And therefore the holy soil of the land brings a kapora for the person, even if the person did not come during his or her lifetime. And uh, because of that there was a custom, there still is the custom throughout the Jewish world, that even a Jew that passes away in the exile and is buried outside of Eretz Israel, but uh, in the grave, uh, earth from Eretz Israel is always placed there. Because the earth of Eretz Israel is v'chiper atmoso amo, and that's what he said, gush ofom Eretz Israel, a piece of the dust of the dirt of Eretz Israel is sufficient to bring a kapor for a person. So we see that one of the values of Eretz Israel is that it is holy. And the rule in Jewish law is kol amachubor letahara tohor. If you are attached to purity, to holiness, then you become somewhat holy. It's, a, uh, it's an osmosis effect. It seeps into you, whether you want it or not. And therefore... Eretz Yisrael has that value that for the Jewish people it brings holiness to us. And it's one of the mitzvahs, there are two mitzvahs, the, the Bali Musa said, there are two mitzvahs that a Jew can, the, the word in Lithuania was that he can walk in with his boots. The one is in the sukkah, right? You go into the sukkah, so you have the mitzvah. And one is Eretz Yisrael. You come there, it's just oil, you walk in, you're here. That's the mitzvah. So that's the only, those are the only mitzvahs that, so to speak, you know, you can do with your boots on. You just walk in. You don't, doesn't require uh, any great thought on your part as much as it requires just your presence in a certain place. Second idea regarding Eretz Yisrael, Esalech lifnei Hashem sachayim. I want to walk in front of God in the land of the living. So the Gemara says, Eretz Yisrael. Eretz Yisrael is the land of the living. 
the Gemara says that Tchiyas HaMesim begins in Eretz Yisrael. We have that concept that's called Gilgul Mechilos, that uh, when the dead are resurrected, so there will be tunnels that will exist, uh, that will uh, be able that the Jews who are buried outside Eretz Yisrael will be able to roll to Eretz Yisrael, because in Eretz Yisrael is where Tchiyas HaMesim will be. By tradition, uh, Tchiyas HaMesim will begin on the Mount of Olives, on Harazesim. And that's why Harazesim became the original famous Jewish cemetery in the world. And that's why the Hebra Kaddisha charges more money there than in other places. And you know that Jews like to be first in line, right? So it's going to happen, so you might as well, might as well be there. That's the same concept, that there's a holiness to the land itself. And the holiness is that it's Eretz Achayim, it's you're alive. Even if the person is physically not alive. But being in Eretz Yisrael, because of Echiper Admoso Amo, uh, then he is considered to be alive. And the Gemara says, Tzadikim b'misosom nikroim chayim. Righteous people, even if they have passed from the world, are still called living people. And Rishoyim Bechayeim, evil people, even if they're still walking around on the earth, Nikroi Mesim, they're dead already. The definition of life and death is not necessarily whether a person is breathing. It has to do with our soul, it has to do with our eternity, it has to do with our memory, it has to do with what people think of us what generations think of us. And therefore, the, gener- the definition of Chaim and Mesim is different. So the Gemara therefore says, Yeshivas Eretz Yisrael mitzvah bifnei Living in Eretz Yisrael is a mitzvah all by itself. So just being here is a mitzvah. You accomplish a mitzvah daily by being here. Not only that, the Gemara says, that if you walk four Amos in Eretz Yisrael every four Amos you walk you have a mitzvah I, had a, I knew a great Jew Elio Kitov Monkotovsky he had Elio Kitov wrote the Sefer Parshias and the Sefer HaTodah uh, he, he was a remarkable person I remember he came to Chicago I was 15 years old he came to Chicago and he spoke. He was a gifted orator, just a tremendous orator. The old-time Polish orators that could speak for two hours and it was like uh, five minutes. And he was, a, he was a tremendously charismatic, wonderful person. And then I got to know him again in Miami and then uh, here in Eretz Yisrael before he passed away. I saw him a few times. So he told me a story once that a Jew, a rabbi, came from the United States and he was visiting him and he started complaining about how things are here which is not hard to do <laughs> especially if you come from the outside so then you know so if you read the newspaper here you know you're depressed every day except for an occasional column but otherwise <laughs> Otherwise, it's very depressing, right? So he was telling him, he was telling Monkatowski everything that's wrong. 
Shimon Katovsky took him by the hand, Elio Kitov, he took him by the hand, and he took him outside the door of his apartment, and he said, come, we're going to take a walk. One, two, three, four, a mitzvah. One, two, three, four, a mitzvah. He made him walk four amas every time. He says, a mitzvah. He said, oh, that, that's how you have to look at Eretz Yisrael. Don't tell me what the... So it's a confusion, and I think that's an important point. You, you should not confuse the government, the policies, the, uh, the national structure of the state of Israel with Eretz Israel. It's two different things. And because we confuse the two, so unfortunately there are Jews that don't appreciate Eretz Israel because they don't like the government. Or they don't like the way Jews behave here. Or they see always the shadows instead of the light. But you're not allowed to see Eretz Yisrael that way. It was the whole lesson with the Meraglim that Moshe sent the spies. Everything they said was true. But then they added one thing. They said, but the land is no good. That, that sealed their doom. That you could say there are giants in the land. You can say it will be hard to conquer it. You can say there are great fortresses. You can say the United Nations is against us. You can say everything. That's all true. But you can't say anything about Eretz Israel. Motsi dibosom roa. They said bad things about the land. Eretz ocheles yoshveli, they said. It's a land that destroys its people. Oh no, God said, no, no, no. There you cross the red line. Can't talk about Eretz Yisrael. You have to always talk bishvocho shel Eretz Yisrael. You always have to talk about what, the greatness of it. And the other things you can say. There's, there's no problem in saying that there are giants in the land, that it, it's going to be hard and it's going to be this, and the, and the Kanani are here and the Prezi are here, and all of that was true. They, they were not punished for saying that. That was their job to come back and give the report. But their conclusion of saying, Eretz Ocheles Yoshveli, that it's a country that destroys people, oh, no, no, no. No, 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 not that. That God didn't allow. And so that's a basic rule. So again, you know, you can disagree with the government, and they give you plenty of reason to do so. And you can disagree with policies, and you disagree, but you cannot disagree with Eretz Israel because that's an overriding value. It's such an overriding value that Chazal say, Gimel You want to have a fast-tracked Olam You know, like in the computer now, uh, if uh, four seconds is too long for you to wait till you get on the Internet, so they have like a streaming broadband that's always on, and you're there in a second, right? You mean the shortcut. So what's the shortcut Olam So the Gemara says, Zador Eretz Yisrael. If you live in Eretz Yisrael, that's a shortcut Olam So the rabbi saw it as such an overriding value that uh, that it, it can take you to Olam Just being in Eretz Yisrael can take you in Olam
And the Gemara said that you have to treat Eretz Yisrael with respect. The land, again. Gemara says, They didn't want to grow sheep, goats, in Eretz Yisrael because they eat up all the grass, they destroy the country. So they have to have special reservations for them in places, mostly in the deserts. There's zoning laws that the Gemara is full of regarding Eretz Yisrael, and especially regarding Yerushalayim. You can't have smoke in the city, and you can't have manufacturing. Because the place is holy. You have to treat it holy. And if it's holy, you can't do everything you want. It has restrictions with it. The Gemara says, why does it rain in the world? <laughs> How the Gemara talks. Why does it rain in the world? So the Gemara says, because Eretz Yisrael needs rain. Since Eretz Yisrael needs rain, so it rains in Ireland too. But if Eretz Yisrael wouldn't need rain, and that's what it says, that, Lo Eretz Mitzrayim, you're going to bring it to a place that's not like the land of Egypt where it never has to rain because they have the Nile River and they can irrigate everything. I'm bringing a place that's dry, that's desert, and you have to hope that it rains. And therefore, since Eretz Yisrael needs rain, so the whole world is blessed with rain. And that's why when we say Geshem and Tal, the prayers, so the prayers are for Eretz Yisrael, even if we are living in different places, in different climes, and because of the fact that every place is blessed because of Eretz Yisrael. The Rosh was asked when he was the Roman Toledo in the uh, 1300s, the early 1300s, why in Spain, in Toledo, which has plenty of rain, uh, why should they say Talomota? Uh, or Mashivaruach Muradageshen? Because it really doesn't affect them. And the Rosh answered, we don't say it for Toledo, we don't say it for Spain, we say it for Eretz Yisrael. If Eretz Yisrael will be blessed, then every place will be blessed. J.M. and the A.M. are a barrel wine. You know how amazing his lectures are, and we've been treated and uh, continue to be treated to an amazing discussion of the land of Israel here at J.M. and the A.M., my name is Nachum Siegel. Good morning, Thursday on this July 23rd, the seventh day in the month of Menachem Av. Three great radio stations, 91.1 FM, 90.1 up in the Catskills, 91.9 on the FM dial in the Rockland County area. Tune us in all the time. Tomorrow you'll uh, hear the uh, weekly update. Malcolm Holmline will join us in the 7 o'clock hour. We'll analyze the events of this week. Kolak we keep saying it. And we keep saying it for good reason. Kolakavo to those who have uh, proven that there can be an effective demonstration rally get together in New York City during the summer months on a weeknight. Uh, yesterday, over 10,000 people in New York City's Times Square. The Stop Iran rally. And uh, again, Kolakavo to everybody. I mentioned earlier in the show how impressed I was and how inspired I was by a group from Columbus, Ohio who bust in the, uh, I don't know, what is it, 10, 12 hours, whatever the number of hours is by bus, to New York City to be at the rally yesterday. And they're 
probably just getting back to Columbus now. And um, I was I got a phone call a little while ago from somebody who heard what I said about Columbus, Ohio. And they told me that Baltimore, Maryland was well represented at the rally, that people drove up from Baltimore to be there. And uh, that really, that says something. That says something about this gathering yesterday. Uh, it says something when so many people made sure, no matter where they're from, the New York, New Jersey area, from Central Jersey, Northern Jersey, from Long Island, from Westchester, and so many different areas, they all converged on Manhattan, all converged in the Times Square area yesterday to rally against the Iran deal. It says something. And when Columbus, Ohio, and Baltimore, Maryland send contingents like they did, it says something as well. I... um I encourage you, and these lists are being published everywhere. We're going to try to put it on our website. I think someone sent it to me last night, so we could publish it on the website. Um, no, I don't have it yet. Uh, but there are lists that are being published in many different areas that include the phone numbers of uh, members of the United States House of Representatives, members of the United States Senate. And in many cases, the lists that are being provided are those of the of those who are swing voters, those who uh, we really do think can be swayed to vote against this deal. And um, we encourage you, encourage everybody, no matter what your state you're in, not just New York and New Jersey, but wherever you are, contact your representative, contact your U.S. senators, and let them know. If they're voting against it, encourage them. If they're voting for it, try to sway them. If they're not sure, certainly try to influence them to do the right thing. Many people have been focused on the uh, potential uh, vote of Senator Chuck Schumer in New York, and it certainly is an important one, and it can sway a lot of people. Uh, he released a statement yesterday, subsequent to his statement that uh, that we had spoken about um, earlier, when he said he'll take the weekend to read the uh, agreement and to go through it with a fine-tooth comb. Uh, the statement he released yesterday, which I don't have in front of me, uh, mentioned that he uh, has read the deal, and now he's going to ask the many questions that he has to the many experts that he knows to see what they say about the different things that he would like to follow up with regarding the deal. So we'll see what happens. Uh, yes, he is an important vote. It'll be interesting to see which way he goes here, that's for sure. be very interesting to see. Um. The um, Assemblyman Dove Hyken of Brooklyn, great friend of the show and wonderful public official, is calling on Senator Schumer to publicly oppose the recent Iran nuclear agreement. They are gathering, and this, this is interesting, they are literally gathering at Senator Schumer's office, 783rd Avenue between East 48th and East 49th Streets in New York City today at 11. Assemblyman Dove Heikind has called on Senator Schumer to publicly oppose the Iran deal and to commit to leading the fight to stop it in Congress. We've listened to Senator Schumer for years, and now he takes every opportunity to explain the origin of his name Schumer and what it means for him to be a proud showmare, protector. From the time as congressman to one of the most powerful members of the Senate, Senator Schumer, you have repeatedly called yourself our showmare, protector. Now is the time to live up to your claim and put your words into action. We need you to demonstrate leadership on one of the most critical foreign policy issues of our time. 
Be our protector and stop this terrible deal, said Heikind. Heikind added, Senator Schumer says he'll do the right thing. These are unprecedented times, and it's time to stop this deal, which is disastrous for America and our allies in the Middle East. This will define your legacy. I don't even know if that's a uh, if that's an exaggeration. As, as 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 much as it sounds like one, I don't know if it's an exaggeration. A lot of people said this to me last night that this will in fact define his legacy. Anyway, Heiken continues. I am sure you will not allow partisan politics or any other considerations to cloud your judgment. I call upon all New Yorkers, this is the, the words of Dove Heikend, to join me in front of Senator Schumer's Manhattan office at 783rd Avenue, this is today at 11 o'clock, to let him know how you feel. Senator Schumer is a powerful voice in Congress, and he needs to hear from you. Now is not the time to be silent. So it'll be interesting to see what happens, and uh, certainly interesting to see how Senator Schumer and other powerful senators uh, vote regarding this uh, this Iran deal. Yeah, very interesting. JM in the AM Thursday. Tomorrow's our weekly update, and uh, we'll get an opportunity at about 7.40 tomorrow morning to speak with Malcolm Holmline and get his impressions of the news items of the week, including the latest regarding the deal with Iran. 71 degrees, 57% humidity, Windsor West at 2 miles an hour. It could be close to perfect weather out there. And those who know me know I very, very rarely designate a day as a perfect weather day. <laughs> Sunshine, I'm completely leaving my usual uh, point of view. Uh, sunshine today with a high temperature of 86. Tonight, clear skies, a low of 68. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, a high temperature 86 degrees. Yushalayim is heading up to 95. Up in Guilford, New York, our friends at Camp Misora, who I am told have their big intercamp day today. They're at 50, going up to 78 under partly cloudy skies. Yesterday, I was um, in a conversation regarding Shabbos Nachamu up at camp. There's so many camps and so many wonderful groups in the Catskills that do so many great things for Shabbos Nachamu. A lot of wonderful concerts uh, as we uh, get past Tishabov, which is observed this Sunday. We'll start getting back into the uh, summer concert scene and obviously the uh, Jewish music season, the brand new Jewish music season. Uh, but there are a lot of wonderful things going on Shabbos Nachamu. I think that the uh, I think the camps and the community in general uh, enjoy it more. When instead of a couple of days or even, uh, you know, half a week or so, an entire week, uh, is between, uh, Tisha B'Av and Shabbos Nachamu. Something nice to build up to. So as we, uh, complete the nine days and, uh, observe Tisha B'Av on the 10th of Av this coming Sunday, I certainly hope that everyone gets an opportunity to enjoy a, uh, great Shabbos Nachamu next week, uh, no matter what you plan on doing. Um, it should be a fun and peaceful weekend for everybody. J.M. in the A.M. Thursday, this is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM dial, broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jmtheam.org. Mentioned uh, yesterday that there are so many cities that have designated, whether it was yesterday or upcoming in the next few days, have designated a date and time for a rally in their area, uh, Miami, Los Angeles, and others, 
that are participating. I speak to those of you who are outside the New York, New Jersey area. Uh, if there's something happening in your in your neighborhood, in your community, in your city, in the downtown portion of your major city, whatever it may be, try your best to participate, to hit the streets, to rally and demonstrate and support Israel, support the United States, and rally and demonstrate against this Iran deal. Uh, it is so important that those crowds be as large as possible whenever they're called for. So again, we thank you for uh, doing your part in all of this, and let's hope that more and more people continue to take our advice that more and more people continue to uh, contact their representatives and their two U.S. senators, no matter what state you're from, and uh, make your voice heard. Encourage them to kill the deal. Galaitzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for a Thursday follows next. We say Boker Tov from Jam and the Am. Galaitzal, צהל החל להפעיל מערכת חדשה בעוטף עזה שתאריך את זמן ההתראה מפני פצמרים. כתבנו רמי שני. מערכת ההתראה שהותקנה כבר סמוך ליישובים צמודי גדר מסוגלת לתת התראה מהירה על יציאה של רקטות קיצות טווח ולאפשר לתושבים ביישובים מאוימים זמן ארוך יותר לתפיסת מחסה. בפיקוד הדרום אומרים כי בתוך שבועות ספורים תושלם התקנת המערכת בכל אזור עוטף עזה. במקביל הוחל בהפעלתן של מערכות הזעקה ניידות כדי להטריע לכוחות הפורצים באזורים מאוימים. הפלסטינים אומרים כי מותו של תושב בית אומר במהלך עימותים עם צהל הוא רצח. בצהל אומרים, המשפחה נהגה באלימות. כתבנו ג'קי חוגי. חמאס והג'יהאד האיסלאמי טוענות כי ישראל הוציאה להורג בדם קר את האזרח בן ה-53, פלאח אבו מריה, הבוקר בביתו בכפר בית אומר. לטענת בני המשפחה, אבו מריה נורה בתוך ביתו בעת שנרתם לעזור לבנו, שחיילים ירו לעברו במהלך מהומות בכפר. בדובר צה"ל אומרים כי המשפחה התנגדה למעצר באלימות ותקפה את החיילים. שני שוטרים חשודים ששתלו סמים ברכבו של עבריין במטרה להפלילו. כתבתנו הדס שטייף. על פי החשד, בעקבות השיבוש שביצעו לכאורה השוטרים, נפתחה חקירה נגד אדם החשוד בביצוע עבירות סחר בסמים. ולאחר שנבחן החומר המודיעיני, החליט פרקליט מחוז דרום למחוק חלק מכתב האישום, בעיקר החלק הקשור לסמים שנתפסו ברכבו לכאורה. אתמול נעצרו החשודים, ובשעה הקרובה הם יובאו לדיון בהארכת מעצרם. נער כבן 16 החולה בסרטן ברח מבית החולים רמב״ם לאחר שלדבריו אולץ לעבור טיפולי כימותרפיה שפגעו בו. בעקבות כך פנה בית החולים לבית המשפט שהוציא צו להחזרת הנער לטיפולים. כתבנו גיא ורון מציין כי בעבר סירבה משפחתו של הנער לאשפוז רפואי, אך הפעם מדובר בהחלטה שלו בלבד. משרד הבריאות מתנגד להעברת שירותי הבריאות לתלמיד, החיסונים ובדיקות הראייה והשמיעה לאחריות המדינה. כתבתנו יערה שפירא. שירותי בריאות לתלמיד ניתנים כיום בידי חברות פרטיות שנבחרות במכרז. אתמול פרסמנו כי הוגשה הצעת חוק להעלמתם כפי שדרש בעבר משרד הבריאות, אבל כעת נודע לנו כי המשרד בהובלת ליצמן מתנגד נחרצות להצעה ומעוניין להשאיר את מתן השירותים בידי החברות הפרטיות. גורמים בסביבתו אומרים לנו שמדובר בעמדה פופוליסטית שנקט לקראת משחק הגומלין הערב מול שרלואה, מאמן בית"ר ירושלים סלובודן דרפיץ' מגבה את החלטת הבעלים אלי טביב לעזוב את הקבוצה. הוא שוחח עם אלי ישראלי ואפי טריגר. לא ראיתי אותו אף פעם ככה פגוע. עומר, אתה תתנהל ברגיל. אני אעשה מלחמות שלי ודברים שלי, וזו תמונה לא הכי אידיאלית שיש, ואני לא... 
בחרתי להיות בסיטואציה כזאת, אבל אני צריך להתנהל כמו בן של האבא שצריך לדאוג על האחים הקטנים שלה. עוד בכדורגל, אבי ריקן חתם לשלוש שנים במכבי תל אביב. כתבתנו קרן בן מרדכי מציינת שבעבר שיחק ריקן בביתר ירושלים ובשנתיים האחרונות באפצע ציריך בשוויץ. אלה החדשות שעורך הדר שיפר. Greatly appreciate you tuning in and being part of this great radio broadcast. Rabbi Beryl Wine has been uh, educating us, as usual, during our nine days format. And we thank him for that. It's uh, always an incredibly inspiring experience hearing his words about Jewish history and getting his perspective on these incredible uh, recordings um, that uh, go through thousands of topics. Uh, today we're, we're going to conclude now. I hope we're going to reach the conclusion. It may take a little bit over the break, but meaning at the bottom of the hour. But um, uh, we're going to uh, try and conclude the uh, lecture on the land of Israel uh, from the Jewish Values series right here at JM in the AM. So again, you know, you can disagree with the government, and they give you plenty of reason to do so. And you can disagree with policies, and you disagree, but you cannot disagree with Eretz Yisrael. Because that's an overriding value. It's such an overriding value that Chazal say, Gimel menoch alei olam You want to have a fast-tracked olam You know, like in the computer now, uh, if uh, four seconds is too long for you to wait till you get on the internet... So they have like a streaming broadband that's always on and you're there in a second, right? You mean the shortcut. So what's the shortcut, Olam Abba? So the Gemara says, Zador Eretz Yisrael. If you live in Eretz Yisrael, that's a shortcut, Olam Abba. So the rabbi saw it as such an overriding value that uh, that It, it can take you to Olam Abba. Just being an Eretz Yisrael can take you to Olam Abba. And the Gemara said that you have to treat Eretz Yisrael with respect. The land, again. Gemara says, They didn't want to grow sheep, goats in Eretz Yisrael because they eat up all the grass, they destroy the country. So they had to have special reservations for them in places, mostly in the deserts. There's zoning laws that the Gemara is full of regarding Eretz Yisrael, and especially regarding Yerushalayim. You can't have smoke in the city, and you can't have manufacturing. Because the place is holy. You have to treat it holy. And if it's holy, you can't do everything you want. It has restrictions with it. The Gemara says, why does it rain in the world? <laughs> How the Gemara talks. Why does it rain in the world? So the Gemara says, because Eretz Yisrael needs rain. Since Eretz Yisrael needs rain, so it rains in Ireland too. But if Eretz Yisrael wouldn't need rain, and that's what it says, that, Lo Eretz Mitzrayim, you're going to bring it to a place that's not like the land of Egypt where it never has to rain because they have the Nile River and they can irrigate everything. 
I'm bringing a place that's dry. That's desert. And you have to hope that it rains. And therefore, since Eretz oil needs rain, so the whole world is blessed with rain. And that's why when we say Geshem and Tal, the prayers, so the prayers are for Eretz Yisrael, even if we are living in different places, in different climes, and because of the fact that every place is blessed because of Eretz Yisrael. The Rosh was asked when he was the Roman Toledo in the uh, 1300s, the early 1300s, why in Spain, in Toledo, which has plenty of rain, uh, why should they say uh, Talumota? Or Mashibaruach Muradageshim? Because it really doesn't affect them. And the Rosh answered, we don't say it for Toledo, we don't say it for Spain, we say it for Eretz Yisrael. If Eretz Yisrael will be blessed, then every place will be blessed. And if Eretz Yisrael is, God forbid, not blessed, so then the things aren't blessed in other places either. That is how Chazal saw Eretz Yisrael. They saw it as the focus of all blessings. The country itself. And one of the signs that the rabbi said of the impending redemption of the land of, of the Jewish people, rather, is when the land of Israel begins to produce. When you see uh, the fruit market full of every imaginable type of fruit and vegetable, is something which was unheard of even uh, 30 years ago, 25 years ago in the country. And today we take it for granted. You know, and we're disappointed, you know, that uh, blueberries are out of season. (laughs) But uh, Chazal saw in every piece of fruit and every vegetable that grew in the land of Israel, they saw holiness. Because that is the idea of mitzvos atulios moritz, of the mitzvahs that are dependent upon growing in Eretz Yisrael. Rabbi say, why did Moshe make such a fuss that he wants to go to Eretz Yisrael? And I prayed to God, the Lord says, 900 times, and until God said, you know, send the Nutnik away, stop. I don't want to hear anymore. Don't talk about it anymore. So the Chazal say, so what did Moshe want? What is Moshe missing? Moshe is going all the Mabo, Moshe has the Torah, Moshe is uh, intimate, so to speak, with God Himself. So what does he need? So the Gemara says he needs the mitzvahs of Leosborits. He needs to eat an apple that doesn't have Orla, Kilayim, that has Miser, that has Truma. That's what he needs. So we take it for granted, right? By us, an apple is an apple is an apple. But Jews always saw in it more than the apple. They always saw in it, it's a holiness because it's sanctified. It's sanctified with so many mitzvahs. And Chazal even goes so far as to say, that all the mitzvahs that are performed outside the land of Israel, film, 
Kriya Shema, all of the mitzvahs that Jews do the world over are only to keep in training for doing mitzvahs in Eretz Yisrael. And that the real mitzvahs are only in Eretz Yisrael. So it gives us a different sense of being here. It certainly... Uh, uh, I always have that feeling, at least, on the rare times that I eat a fruit, that, uh, you know, look at me, right? Generally, I always have the feeling, you know, Moshe couldn't do it, and I'm doing it. Moshe wasn't here, and I'm here. Right? I take it for granted. But the rabbi saw in it this great holiness, this great uniqueness, this great special feeling. Because it's Eretz Asher Eini Hashem Elokecho It's the holy land. It's a place where God is, so to speak. And because of that, the rabbis called it Palter in Shalmelech, the king's palace. So there are duties upon us because if you're in the king's palace you're supposed to behave yourself. But however that may be, it's still the king's palace. And therefore that is the feeling, the emotion that goes with it. Now Chazal saw in uh, Yeshua Veretz Yisrael uh, Overriding values. They said that, for instance, Yishuvaret Yisrael in certain instances overrides the Shabbat. The Gemara says, Mutter, it is permissible, Lokachas Botim Beretz Yisrael Minakum, on Shabbat to buy property in Eretz Yisrael from the hands of non Jews because of the fact that Yishuvaret Yisrael takes precedence. And uh, the Gemara says that Eretz Yisrael domel lemilo, the mitzvah of Eretz Yisrael is equal to the mitzvah of circumcision. Ma mila docha Shabbos, just like the mitzvah of mila is docha Shabbos, and if the child is born on Shabbat and his brit is on Shabbat, that was usually the origin of the name Shabsai. Was a child that was born on Shabbat and circumcised on Shabbat, so he was a Shabbos Jew. So too, Eretz Yisrael Docha Shabbat. Eretz Yisrael also, certain instances, is also Docha de Shabbat. And therefore, we have this great quality simply because of the holiness of Eretz Yisrael. Now, the Gemara says even more radical statements. Uh, if the Gemara wouldn't say it, I certainly wouldn't say it. Certainly not on television. But it's a Gemara. The Gemara says, A Jew should live in Eretz Yisrael, even in a city, in a community that is mainly non-Jewish. Rather than living in Chutzlaretz, in a city that is very Jewish. Anybody who lives in Eretz Israel sooner or later comes to the realization that there's a God in the world. 
And in Chutzlor, it's after a while, God takes a very secondary position. Now, that's a very strong statement. If we would apply it today, we could say it without mentioning names of communities, but we all know, you know, that there are holy Jewish communities throughout the world. And here in Israel, there are places where, you know, it's not so hot. It's not so great. But the Gemara says Eretz Yisrael is such an overriding value. Living in Eretz Yisrael is such an overriding value that it overrides that too. The Gemara says, Kol Ador Eretz Yisrael, Shorui below Ovam. Someone who lives in Eretz Yisrael is as though he lives without sin. So the Mephoshim explained, because the Yisurim of Eretz Yisrael are of such a nature that our sins are forgiven daily. And if you think about it, every day, every day something happens, right? You listen to the news, I don't know anybody that walks away from the news happy. So that instant of pain, when you hear the stupidities that go on, and the problems, right? So that instant is a kapora already. Because one of the uh, facets of Eretz Yisrael is that it's mechaper. And since it's niknis biyasurim, so therefore the sins are more easily erased. So there was always an eternal covenant between the Jewish people and the land of Israel, whoever the Jews were. The Jews always, they named their uh, streets after uh, the land of Israel. You know, I went uh, once uh, through Provence, every little town where Jews once were, Lunel and Montpellier and uh, Arles and uh, Orange, and uh, Posquares, all the towns where the Chachme Provence lived. So there are no Jews left. All the Jews are gone. There even even a Jewish cemetery left. It's nothing. But in all of them, in the medieval part of the town that is preserved, there is a street called Rue Jerusalem. And Jews always remembered it. Whoever they went. And Nachman of Breslov said, Every step that I take is towards Jerusalem. That was the covenant that Jews had. And even though uh, for centuries on end they had no chance to physically achieve it, but mentally in their minds they achieved it. Spiritually they achieved it. They were home. Therefore, even in the darkest places of Eastern Europe and in the mellows of Morocco, uh, Jews were attached to Eretz Yisrael. And they were attached to Eretz Yisrael because of the fact that it was a value. It was not a matter of Jewish nationalism. It was a matter of a spiritual value that held a place in their heart and soul. And uh, that's part of the problem. Uh, what happened uh, over a hundred years ago with the coming of secular Zionism is that uh, secular Zionism uh, replaced the value of Eretz Yisrael 
And he replaced it with the value of Jewish nationalism, of being a nation. To a certain extent, Kechola Goyim based Israel. We're going to be like everybody else. We have our own country, and our own flag, and our own army, and our own anthem, and we'll be like everyone else. And it's no surprise, therefore, that in 1904, when England offered Uganda to Herzl, he took it. Because he wasn't sold on Eretz Israel, he was sold on the fact that the Jews need a national home, they need a place of refuge, and that national home, a place of refuge, could be Uganda, right? It's just too bad that America didn't offer San Diego. And the Zionist Congress approved the Ugandan plan. Fell apart because evidently God was not interested in Uganda. And it's interesting that the Eastern European Jews, led by Weizmann, uh, were the main opponents of this idea because uh, the Eastern European Jew, even when he was secularized, still was attached to Eretz Israel. Even if he was a national, a believer in Jewish nationalism, even if he was a believer in, uh, and in socialism and in all of the other things that rode the horse of Zionism, labor Zionism, all of the things, all of the isms, but they still were attached to Eretz Israel. And in being attached to Eretz Israel, they were not willing to take Uganda. And that was the whole discussion uh, throughout uh, the uh, all of the 20th century. And now that we live in a post-Zionist, modernist period, so we're back again that Eretz Israel is not the value anymore. There are other values. But that Eretz Israel should be a value? No, that, that no longer resonates. And that's part of the damage of secularism. It's not that people don't put on film. It's not that people are not Sabbath observers. That's not the issue. And those who think it's the issue only see it in tunnel vision in a very narrow sense. It's that the whole view of the Jewish people, the whole history of the Jewish people, the whole goal, the whole etgar, the whole challenge of the Jewish people is different. Because now it's, no, you know, why should we, uh, now the, we want to be Venezuela. We really want to be Canada, but Canada is big, so we'll settle for being Venezuela. But that's not Eretz Yisrael. And that vision, and that way of viewing it, uh, is really uh, the casualty of uh, a century of secularism. That's the main problem with secularism. And it reflects itself in a hundred different issues. Uh, But that's the main uh, situation that exists. So the Gemara gives us an example of Eretz Yisrael again. The Gemara says, 
Maaseb Reb Yudah ben Bobov, Reb Matisio ben Chorosh, Reb Chanino ben Achi. Now these three uh, great Rabbonim, Tanoim, lived after the Hadrianic persecutions, uh, when all the rabbis, Reb Yudah ben Boba, will eventually be uh, martyred by the Romans. And the uh, Eretz soil is falling apart. The Romans are running it. Uh, the Jews are being persecuted. Uh, the uh, yeshivas find it hard to maintain themselves. It's not a happy time for the Jewish people. It's about the year 150 of the Common Era, 140 of the Common Era. So they, uh, so they, they're leaving. They're yording. They're going to leave Eretz Israel. And they have justifications for it. When you're talking about three of the great Tanoim. Higiu Liflatus. So they came to the city of Philatus, which is on the border, the border of Israel and Syria. And they remembered that they're leaving Eretz Israel. They saw the sign, Mokshim Lefonecho, the border, Gvul Lefonecho, the borders ahead of you. Had to get their password ready to cross. They remembered that they're leaving Eretz Yisrael. Zokfu All of a sudden they lifted up their eyes. So the Mephorshim say, what do you mean they lifted up their eyes? All of a sudden they looked into the future. And they looked into the past. Vizolgu dimoseim. And their eyes filled with tears. Vikoru bigdeim. And they ripped their clothes in agony. The Yomru and they said, Yeshiva Seretz Yisroel Shkula Keneget Kola Mitzvah Shebatora. Staying in Eretz Yisroel outweighs all of the mitzvahs of the Torah, the Gemara says. The Chosrulim Koma. And they came back home. They couldn't leave. So we have halochas uh, that it's not so simple. Uh, to leave Eretz Yisrael, there has to be a very good cause. So in today's world, I don't know, in today's world, you know, you get on a plane and it's not such a big deal, and who doesn't want to see Cyprus and Croatia and other places? So, uh, you know, it's, we, don't, we don't hear how that resonates either. But I know Jews here that have never left Yerushalayim in their lifetime. Never gone outside the environs of Yerushalayim. And I know Jews who've never left there at Sisera. Because again, it's a value. And there are certain people who feel that value within their bones. Gemara says, "Ain Torah ketoras Eretz Yisrael." So we see that also, even though there are great yeshivas all over the world, but all the Talmud Chachamim come to learn in Eretz Yisrael, right? With the thousands of young men that come from the exile to learn in Eretz Yisrael. Ain Torah ketoras Eretz Yisrael. The variety of yeshivas, the amount of Torah in Eretz Yisrael is just mind-boggling. Who would have imagined it uh, even a few short decades ago that we would have such numbers? And such a variety. 
hundreds of yeshivas. J.M. in the A.M., we will get to the conclusion of our lecture on the land of Israel coming up. It's 28 minutes after 7 o'clock. J.M. in the A.M. Thursday. Reminder, our weekly update tomorrow. Malcolm Holmline will join us. We'll discuss the events of the week. Big Yeshikoch, kudos, kolakavod to those who were at the rally yesterday in New York City. We mentioned people who came in from out of town, from outside the New York, New Jersey area to be there and be part of it. I remind everybody that the pressure must be maintained. Every member of the United States House of Representatives uh, must be contacted, especially those in your district. If you are a citizen of the United States of America, you have a representative, you have a congressman or congresswoman in your congressional district. Contact them. Let them know how you feel about the deal. Uh, two U.S. senators from every state in this nation, two U.S. senators, please contact them. Let them know how you feel about the deal. J.M. in the A.M., reminder today, Assemblyman Dove Heikind has called for a rally outside the office of somebody um, whom we continue to be very curious about regarding the vote, regarding the reaction to the deal. We wonder whether he'll kill the deal or not. I refer, of course, to... Uh, United States Senator from New York, Senator Charles Schumer. Uh, today, Assemblyman Dove Heikind has called on Senator Schumer to publicly oppose the recent Iran agreement, and uh, he will gather and invites everybody to gather outside the office of Senator Schumer, 783rd Avenue, between East 48th and East 49th Streets in New York City today at 11 a.m. 783rd Avenue, 11 a.m. today under the leadership of Assemblyman Dove Heikind of New York State. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. We say in Tehillim, Mizmar Asof, a song to Asof. Rashi notes it would have been perhaps more appropriate to begin Kinala Asof, a dirge for Asof as this chapter mostly describes the destruction of the Beis HaMikdosh. Rashi explains that Asaf sang because Hashem in His mercy poured His wrath on the stones and wood and not on Klal Yisrael. Rashi also offers an explanation in Shmos. Elep Kudea Mishkan, Mishkan O'edus. The word Mishkan is repeated twice. This alludes to the fact that the destruction of each of the two temples was collateral for the sins of the Jewish nation. In a similar vein, the Sefer Menachem Tzion states that the destruction of the Beis HaMikdosh is because Klal Yisroel was saved from total annihilation. This is an expression of our Hakara Satov, or our gratitude. The Dubno Magid presents an interesting situation to illustrate the appropriate mindset that is demanded because of the Beis HaMikdosh and its destruction. A woman who hadn't had any children for many years finally was pregnant. When it was time for her to give birth, however, the doctor told her it would be impossible to ensure the life of both mother and child, and therefore he recommended terminating the pregnancy in order to save the mother's life. The mother said, I have no desire for life if you choose to do that. It would be better that I die and that my child should live. And so the child was born and the woman passed on. When the boy grew older, he was taken to the gravesite 
on the day of the yard side of his mother in order to say Kaddish. Those in attendance noted that the boy was neither contemplative nor was he serious. He seemed rather light-hearted and irreverent. The people who had accompanied this young boy explained to him that his mother had given up her own life for his and in fact deserved a lot more from him. The son was overwhelmed because he was unaware of the true circumstances of his birth. So it is with us. Can we possibly say that we are like that young boy who didn't realize what his mother had done for him? Do we mourn over the loss of the Beis HaMikdash? Do we say Kaddish for the Beis HaMikdash with reverence, being cognizant of the immensity of the loss we have suffered, acknowledging the kapara that we attained as a result? Or is there an air of levity and diversion, something that takes us away from our mourning over the loss of the Beis HaMikdash? It's during these days that we remember the Chazal, Whoever properly mourns over Yerushalayim in the base of Mikdash will merit to see its rebuilding speedily in our days. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day. J.M. in the A.M. and now the conclusion of our barrel wine and the uh, lecture entitled The Land of Israel. And they remembered that they're leaving Eretz Yisrael. They saw the sign, Mokshim Lefonecha. The border, the borders ahead of you have to get their passport ready to cross. They remember that they're leaving Eretz Yisrael. All of a sudden they lifted up their eyes. So the Mephorshim say, what do you mean they lifted up their eyes? All of a sudden they looked into the future. And they looked into the past. And their eyes filled with tears. Vikoru Bigdayam and they ripped their clothes in agony. Viyomru and they said Yeshiva Seretz Israel Shkula Keneget Kola Mitzvah Shabatora. Staying in Eretz Israel outweighs all of the mitzvahs of the Torah, the Gemara says. The Khosrulim Koma and they came back home. They couldn't leave. So we have halochas uh, that it's not so simple uh, to leave Eretz Yisrael. There has to be a very good cause. So in today's world, I don't know. In today's world, you know, you get on a plane and it's, it's not such a big deal. And who doesn't want to uh, see Cyprus and uh, Croatia and other places? So uh, you know, it's we don't we don't hear how that resonates either. But I know Jews here that have never left Yerushalayim in their lifetime. Never gone outside the environs of Yerushalayim. And I know Jews who've never left there at Sisera. Because again, it's a value. And there are certain people who feel that value within their bones. Gemara says, "Ain't Torah Ketorah Seretz Yisrael." So we see that also, even though there are great yeshivas all over the world, but all the Talmidei Chachamim come to learn in Eretz Yisrael, right? With the thousands of young men that come from the exile to learn in Eretz Yisrael. Ain't Torah Ketorah Seretz Yisrael. The variety of yeshivas, the amount of Torah in Eretz Yisrael is just mind-boggling. 
who would have imagined it uh, even a few short decades ago that we would have such numbers and such a variety hundreds of yeshivas <coughs> tens of thousands of students and the quality of Torah 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 Seretz Yisrael the Gemara Darshan's on the Posig and Eicho Bagoyi Main Torah the Gemara says Mikan Shah Torah Beretz Yisrael there is no Torah outside of Eretz Yisrael. The Torah outside Eretz Yisrael, again, is only training to be in Eretz Yisrael. Now the Gemara says, how come Eretz Yisrael is such a nothing? Right? If it's such a great country, then the Gemara says, Kol umo not fly in Eretz Yisrael. Every nation has vast amounts of territory. So the Jews said, You're giving us Eretz Israel, you give us a peanut of a land, right? And be what? A land that you can drive two and a half hours and you drive the whole country, right? I once drove through Texas, 990 miles from one end to the other. It's two days of hard driving. It's one state. There's a ranch in Texas. Lyndon Johnson's ranch, which is bigger than New Jersey. It's bigger than Eretz Israel, one guy's ranch. I think Sharon is interested in it, but. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, they, you know, and so the Jews said, Well, you're giving us Eretz Israel, you're giving us, what are you shortchanging us? Omar HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The Abba Shalom said, you don't appreciate what I'm giving you. What I give you is not measured in kilometers. It's not measured in size. It's not measured in natural resources. I'm purposely giving you this land. Because this is the land that has holiness to it. And so that has nothing to do with size. Omer HaKodesh Borchu, God said, Alavai Yehun Bonai Imi Beretz Yisrael Afal Pishem Etami Noso. I wish that my children would be with me here in the land of Israel, even if they defile it. So God is uh, always more tolerant than we are. God can overlook things that we find it hard to overlook. We're not interested that people should come and be matami. Eretz Yisrael should bring uh, dishonor to it, should not treat it as a holy place. But again, the Talmud, uh, this is really a medrash, a yalkut. The medrash puts, so to speak, the metaphor in God's mouth, so to speak, that what? That I'm willing, if they want to come and live with me here, so then the, the mitzvah of Yeshiva's Eretz Yisrael, the value of Yeshiva's Eretz Yisrael, even if they are metameyet. The Gemara says further, Afro shel Eretz Yisrael, gorem lechuva. Again, living in Eretz Yisrael will bring a person to tshuva. Ah, we don't see it yet. You will see it. There are more today than there were 20 years ago, and there are more than were 100 years ago, and 100 years from now it will be better. We don't appreciate the change that has occurred in the country. Because Eretz Yisrael, again, the Yisurim are Gorim Lechuv. A 
Imagine if we had unlimited peace. We had the Rose Garden of the Middle East. Oh, you know, so, you know, people were... People would think it's all right to marry Arabs, and Arabs would think it's all right to marry Jews, and we'd do business together, and be friends together, and it would be wonderful. But God apparently doesn't think it's so wonderful because He doesn't let it happen. And so every turn that we take leaves us up another different blind alley. So it's going to tshuva. It makes us think about being Jewish. Gemara says, You want to see God in this world? Live in Eretz Yisrael. There you'll see Him. Because again, and we can certainly testify to it, because this whole country is one long, large miracle, each and every day. Lulei Hashem, it would not be for the Lord, who knows how anything would be able to exist or survive here. So you want to see it. So you live in Eretz Israel, you see it. I think all of us who are here, uh, probably everyone here uh, came originally from outside Eretz Israel, uh, senses the difference of being here and of not being here. And even though we may long for the Alterheim, and for the comforts and for the benefits that exist, and they do exist, I don't get me wrong. I never speak in denigration of what the Jews in the exile are and what they have accomplished, and perhaps even of the necessity of having Jews in the exile. Nevertheless, uh, Eretz Israel is a special and different place, and it reflects the fact that it's a holy place, and it reflects the, the idea that the Holy One, blessed be here, is here, and that therefore in that unique quality, Eretz Israel is a special value, a value that many times overrides all other values because of its importance and holiness. This concludes... The- J.M. in the A.M. It is, in fact, the conclusion of the Land of Israel. A lecture that took us a couple of days to uh, complete, but uh, we have reached its conclusion. It's a great lecture. Information about Rabbi Beryl Wine and his lectures on Jewish history. It's 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Thursday morning broadcast. It's J.M. in the A.M., nine days format Thursday. Tomorrow, our weekly update, 7.40 tomorrow morning. We'll take... A close look at the events of this week. As we get closer and closer to Tisha B'Av, I want to thank everybody who came to yesterday's rally. It was a wonderful demonstration, great show of support. Uh, a uh, nice way to um, remind members of Congress to kill the deal. It was uh, really a fabulous night. I thought for a um, for a summer night where obviously uh, camps and schools are not around, uh, I thought it was an amazing turnout. I really did. I questioned earlier the judgment of uh, the mayor's office and the NYPD, and God bless the NYPD. There's nobody like them, and we will never stop thanking them and never stop acknowledging them, but we were somewhat taken aback by the placement of the uh, opposition to the rally. I think it's the first time I ever saw that an opposition group to the rally was placed right in the middle 
of the demonstration, you know, a couple hundred feet away from the main stage. That was outrageous. But uh, aside from that, it was, and it was so inspiring seeing groups from Columbus, Ohio, and uh, we were told later on from Baltimore, Maryland, and many other areas outside of New York and New Jersey who made the trip and uh, de- demonstrated great support for the United States, for Israel, for freedom, for a nuclear-free Iran. It was just wonderful. Tomorrow at this time, Malcolm Holmline will join us. We'll explore the events of the week through the weekly update. Our regular format returns Monday morning, 6 a.m. It'll already be the 11th of Av, so we'll get into our regular format this coming Monday here at JM in the AM. Very much looking forward to that. Uh, into the next, uh, into the next stage, the next season, so to speak. Want to remind everybody there's a lot of things going on. A lot of things going on. Yeah, you don't have to wait for the, uh, Nahamu concerts and the, <laughs> and the Catskills concerts that are, uh, being announced for next week and the week after. Uh, even this week, there are different things going on that are of importance. Yesterday, Naomi Nachman was with us. Uh, she joined me live via telephone yesterday, the Aussie Gourmet. And, um, uh, today, she is presiding over an amazing uh, bake sale. Yeah, today and tomorrow, actually. An amazing bake sale that's going on in the uh, five towns. And this is going to benefit the Lone Soldier Center um, in Israel. The Lone Soldier Center, named for Michael Levin, supports the Lone Soldiers and provides physical and emotional support for them, especially now that many of them are coming back from active duty. The bake sale is today until 8 p.m., tomorrow from 10 until 2, at Plum, 416 Central Avenue in Cedarhurst. You're all encouraged to go and purchase some great items. Uh, they have a pre-Tishabov bake sale. Yeah, you're going to be hungry, Shabbos afternoon, when you're thinking about starting a fast and not eating till Sunday night. Get something at the bake sale and get uh, something to enjoy before the fast begins uh, in honor of Shabbos. So uh, that's uh, Naomi and company doing that out in the five towns. We wish them great success today. Oh, maybe I'll head out to the bake sale tomorrow. Hmm, not a bad idea. Uh, also, um, uh, Matis, so I'm, I'm, I'm away. At, in fact, I should email Matis and get the final word. Uh, he is going to be hosting JM Sunday on Sunday. He is going to be uh, hosting um, our JM Sunday program, which is on the web uh, every single Sunday morning. Um, it is Tishabov, and uh, nonetheless, with all the excuses that one can come up with not to present a live radio show, he, in fact, is going to present one. So make sure to be tuned in for JM Sunday this coming Sunday. Also, Mincha at the uh, UN, or I should say across from the UN. Uh, this is the uh, work of Amcha and Triple SJ and some wonderful people who for decades have uh, put the spotlight on Jews and Jewish communities around the world that are in need, that are in danger. Uh, by holding a Mincha service, Tisha B'Av afternoon at the Isaiah Wall. The Isaiah Wall is on the uh, west side of First Avenue. It's First Avenue between 42nd and 43rd Streets in New York City. Bring your towels and fill-in. Mincha begins 2 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you there. Um, we keep reminding everybody that the OU presents Kinos at OU.org on Tisha B'Av morning. Rabbi Weil and Rabbi Weinrib are putting the finishing touches on their presentations, and that will be uh, seen throughout the entire world. Uh, go to OU.org on Sunday and uh, enjoy if that's the proper word, 
or be inspired rather, uh, by the Kinnis presentation done by Rabbi Weil and Rabbi Weinrib this coming Sunday. And finally, in a tradition that has caught on, a tradition that I never dreamt, I, I've made some good Jewish radio predictions in my life. <laughs> I never dreamt that this time slot would become a uh, one of note on the calendar and would be one that people look forward to on the calendar each year. But over the last few years, our very own Charlie Harari, uh, who continues to flourish in this medium, he um, started a tradition with Project Inspire to spend the last two hours of Tisha B'Av with listeners, with people around the world, and obviously because of the timing, mostly with people from the New York and New Jersey area, or the East Coast, I should say. And they're going for it again, and we're going to be presenting it. You'll be able to hear it um, on jmam.org, on nachomsegel.com, on the NSN app, uh, on our listen line. It's... Um, a Project Inspire presentation, Charlie Harari, on the last two hours of Tisha B'Av from 7 p.m. until 9 p.m. this coming Sunday. Um, so tune in and um, and be inspired. Uh, like I say, this has a proven record already. It's amazing how many people have enjoyed over the last few years this, uh, this end of Tisha B'Av presentation. It's a whole lot more than the discussion about what you're going to break your fast on. It's a whole lot more than that. So uh, kudos to uh, Charlie for, again, embarking on this, and the Project Inspire brings it to everybody. And um, we, are sure, we are sure, based on what's happened in past years, that thousands of people from uh, around the world, especially, especially on the East Coast, are going to... Uh, are going to enjoy. By the way, uh, I, I should be fair here and give you the, the title and everything. Um, the uh, where am I here? One second. Um, there's a film being shown. Um, there's a film being shown. Every Tish Above Project Inspire produces an amazing and inspiring film. This year, it's called The Tenth Man. The Tenth Man. You can watch it at ProjectInspire.com. When you tune into Charlie and the Project Inspire staff, 7 p.m. on Tishabov, they will discuss the film, and they'll have other guests joining them as well to discuss it. It is an amazing show. You can tune into our website, NachumSigl.com, or the NSN app. Uh, and not much going on, as they as they um, point out in their press release. There's not much going on 7 p.m. in Tishabov. So we hope that everybody will be listening in at 7 p.m. Eastern Time and uh, being inspired by Charlie and all the other people from Project Inspire and all their special guests who will be part of that presentation on Sunday night. So there you have it. Thursday morning broadcast, JM and the AM, or by uh, Beryl Wine has a series that we've been turning to over the last couple of days called Jewish Values. The topic of this lecture is family at JM in the AM. Family is a very difficult uh, topic to discuss because it's uh, sensitive, emotional, and uh, everybody has their own stories to tell about it. But family as a value uh, is the, one of really the basic pillars of Judaism. 
Rabboni Shalom said to us, Rak eschem yodati mikol mishpachos Your family do I know from all of the families which exist in the world. And uh, Judaism, which is a faith, uh, Jews are a nation, Jews are a race, Jews are a religion, but Jews are a family. And we see ourselves as being a family. And the family has uh, ups and downs, but a family has a bond uh, that is able to span all generations. And really that indicates more than anything else what the Jewish people are. If we were not a family, for instance, we would not have been able to accomplish the ingathering of the exiles which has taken place here in the land of Israel over the last 60 years. People from all parts of the world, uh, different cultures, uh, different experiences, different colors, uh, different traditions. But because it's family, it's family. I uh, always uh, think of uh, the famous story with Rabbi Soloveitchik uh, in New York. Uh, the Soloveitchiks are well known for their family affiliation uh, no matter uh, what or who you are, if you're related to them, so then uh, then they'll go through anything for you. So uh, he was uh, in his uh, heyday as a uh, as a rosh yeshiva. He was saying the shir in yeshivas Rabbeinu Yitzchok in New York, and uh, he was a terror. I mean, he. Uh, the, the students, uh, he brooked uh, no uh, comments and uh, silly questions. And, you know, you sat there in awe. And uh, once he was teaching, uh, and he explained a matter, uh, a difficult matter in the Talmud, and the student had the temerity to raise his hand and say, Rebbe, Rebbe Aaron doesn't say like that. So Rabbi Soloveitchik assumed that Rabaran meant Rabaran Cutler, the uh, the other major Rosh Yeshiva in America, the founder of the Lakewood Yeshiva, the Kletzka Rosh Yeshiva. So he waved them off, you know, he kept on going. But the student persisted. And after another minute, he raised his hand and he said, Rebbe, but Rabaran doesn't say like that. So now Rabbi Soloveitchik uh, fixed him with an atomic look. And he said, uh, who cares what Rebaran says, right? We're, uh, and he kept on going. The student does it for a third time. He raises his hand and he says, Rebaran, Rebbe, Rebaran does not say like that. So now Rabbi Soloveitchik is, you know, the steam is coming out from his ears. And uh, he says, I don't care what Rabbi Cutler says. And the student said, no, not Rabbi Aaron Cutler, your brother Rabbi Aaron. He said, oh, get up and say what he says, please. <laughs> the Torah saw the Jewish people as a family. And therefore, family became a value. And the preservation of family is one could say the primary value in Jewish life. When God chooses Avraham Avinu to be the father of our people, 
and the one that brings monotheism to the world, to other civilizations as well. So God does not list his piety, nor does God list his intelligence, nor does he even list the sacrifice and the risk of life that Avram Avinu undertook in order to promote monotheism. That he went into the furnace of fire, or the ten nisionos that he had. None of that is listed. The Rabboni Sholem says, Why did I choose Avraham? Ki yodativ l'man asher as bonov as beiso achrov. He will be able to build a family. He'll be able to inculcate it in his children and in generations that come afterwards that they will go in the path of God and they'll continue in his mission. So it makes Avram, and we call him Avram Avinu, Avram our father. We don't call him by any other name. We call him our father. So what makes Avram Avram is family. And therefore the Chumash Breshis deals only with the story of family. Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Yosef, the brothers. So the family there also has ups and downs. Has misunderstandings and disputes. But at the end of the Parsha, at the end of the Chumash, at the end of the story, the Jewish people are a family. And that became our hallmark. And the Torah says, You're not allowed to close your eyes to your relatives, to your family. And therefore, Jews are bound together by a bond of blood, not only by a bond of faith. And that's a very, very important thing because it colors our entire attitude. It enables us, you know, somehow to be able to uh, rise above all of the problems that we have and all the differences that we have. And we're a very fractious people, we have always been. And we're able to rise above all of that because, you know, it's my brother, so let's hear what he has to say. In our time, in our generation, over the last 35 years, especially in Western civilization, in the United States, in Europe, and here in Israel as well, unfortunately, the family has been under siege. The traditional concepts, marriage, children, family, two parents in a home, all of that has been uh, decimated. I want to read for you a uh, portion of an article that appeared in the New York Times. Uh, I think it was either last Saturday or Sunday. Uh, the article was written by a man by the name of David Brooks. And he uh, imagines that he meets Karl Marx today. And Karl Marx tells him that his old manifesto and what he said about the working class and about the uh, capitalism, etc., uh, he admits that all of that is wrong, right? That's been disproved. But he has a new manifesto. And the new manifesto uh, 
he uh, writes about it, what Marx would say today. And here is one uh, point that he makes uh, that's really significant, and significant, I think, to our conversation here this evening. He said, more than the Roman emperors, more than the industrial robber barons, the male factors of the educated class seek not only to dominate the working class, but to decimate it. For 30 years they have presided over failing schools without fundamentally attempting to transform them. They have imposed a public morality that affords them maximum sexual opportunity, but guarantees maximum domestic chaos and ruin for those who are lower down the ladder. In 1960, there were not big structural differences in the United States between rich and poor families. In 1960, more than 75% of poor couples were headed by a married couple. Now, less than a third are. While the rates of single parenting have barely changed for the educated elite, the family structure has disintegrated for those lower down the oppressed masses. Poor children are likely to live with, are less likely to live with both biological parents, hence less likely to graduate from school, less likely to get a job, less likely to be in a position to challenge the hegemony of the privileged class. Family inequality produces income inequality from generation to generation. It generates crime, violence, and eventually the destruction of society. Well said, Carl. Because that's what happened. So that you have entire generations that grow up without family, without a sense of family. And without that sense, uh, the child is automatically disenfranchised, sees the world through skewed eyes, is at a disadvantage. And the Torah came to emphasize the importance of family. And therefore, amongst Jews, which were always, we were persecuted, uh, 99% of all Jews in the exile were poor. It's not like it is today. This is the most affluent generation in Jewish history. Absolutely the most affluent generation. And we take it for granted that it's supposed to be that way. Uh, but it was not that way. It was not that way uh, as late as uh, 45 years ago. It was not that way. But even in the poorest of families, there was a structure. There was a family. Somebody was home for you. Somebody cared about you. And therefore, the people could be successful. But if there is no family structure, and if it's all ad hoc, so then uh, we live in a time of great difficulties. And we see it here in our country as well, the crime rate, 
Every day you hear another murder, uh, two murders, three. This was a country that never had a murder. When they built the first uh, prison in Tel Aviv in the 1920s, so the prison stood empty for three years. They didn't have any customers. And then one day in Tel Aviv, the police finally caught a ganiv. They caught a thief. So Bialik wrote a poem. J.M. in the A.M., WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope. In honor of the occasion, because he said, now at least we're a normal people. So now we're plenty normal. Because the breakdown of family eventually leads to the breakdown of society. It gives rise to all of the ills that we are aware of. So it says in the Torah... We will have it uh, shortly in the Chumash Bamidbar. Uh, Moshe heard that the people uh, wept. The families wept. So the Gemara says, what does it mean, It should say, The families wept. What's Bochelimishpachosov? To the Indian, to the uh, idea of, regarding the idea of family. So the Gemara says, Al iske mishpachosov. They wept because of the fact that now that they had the Torah, the Torah emphasized family. It limited them. It limited them sexually. It limited them in social values. It kept them at home. It gave them a different sense of responsibility. They wanted to have the freedom. They wanted to be of a generation that does whatever it wants to do. Everything goes. And therefore, that's why they wept. They wept over the fact that family means responsibility. And that without family responsibility, not only did Jewish people have no future, individual Jews have no future, and society general generally has no future. The rabbis emphasized family to such an extent that they said uh, wild things, uh, at least on the surface. Rabbi Lezer says, Bitcha Bogra, you have a daughter that's old enough to get married, and you can't find a suitable shidduch. Shach you have a slave. Free the slave and marry him off to her. Now, what's that? That is the emphasis on family. The emphasis on family is such that for the sake of family, as we'll see in a few moments here, I hope, we'll see that the rabbis advocated great compromises, personal compromises. For the sake of family. And uh, in our world uh, where uh, matchmaking has gone wild, where it's uh, almost, uh, it would almost be uh, humorous if it weren't so tragic, uh, the Torah looked at it differently. And that's what Rabbi Eliezer said. 
Family is an overriding value. It even overrides uh, the search for the perfect mate. Because uh, basically, uh, except for rabbis, they're hard to find. And uh, so all of life is compromised. Family is compromised. Marriage is compromised. But if the value of family is primary, if that's the priority in life, and the priority in Jewish life, so then it overrides uh, many times uh, personal wants and ideas. So we're going to have two sides to the question, uh, which the Gemara discusses and does not ever come to a conclusion. One side of the discussion is not to bring into one's family people that are not proper. They will disrupt the family. So the Gemara teaches us, for instance, There's a family that one of the sons marries a woman who is not proper for him. Now, Eino Hogeneslo, in its uh, Talmudic sense, in the sense of halacha, means that she was forbidden to him. It's a relationship which the halacha forbids. But in its broadest sense, it means it's just not fitting. It's not right. It doesn't belong in that family. So the Gemara says... Boyin bnei mishpocha, it was the custom in the time of the Talmud. The other members of the family came, umevin chovis mleo peros, and they brought a barrel, a bushel full of fruit, vishovrinosa beemsa rechova, and in the mid, they would put it down in the middle of the street, Everybody would then be looking, and they would break the barrel, or break the bushel open so that the fruit would roll on the street. And people would say, Mazer, what, what is that about? The Omrim, and they would say, Achenu b'nei Yisrael, our brothers, the children of Israel. Shimu, listen to us. Achinu ploni, our brother so-and-so. And they said his name. Nosa Isha Sheino Geneslo has married a woman that's improper. As, therefore, he has damaged our family. And he's damaged the society as well. And we want you to know about it. And we see in the Gomorrah, we'll see in a minute that the Gomorrah is in favor of uh, public acknowledgement that it was a mistake rather than to cover it up. Because by covering it up, there's an acquiescence to it. I have this que- I've had this question so many times in, uh, in my rabbinic career. It's tragic, but it's the question that exists, and certainly in the American rabbinate. Right? This, he's an Orthodox Jew. you got a cousin, and the cousin is going to marry a non-Jew. And his aunt... Uh, who was his beloved aunt and who went to every birthday party 
And, uh, you know, and they always had, his aunt insists that he should come to the wedding. They should be, you know, because what can we do? We have to make her closer, we have to bring her, you know. And, and, uh, shall he go? So my answer was always a resounding no. They can do what they want, but you don't have to be part of it. And so then I would get a call from the aunt. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I always ended up the villain. But this Gemara shows us uh, that, uh, you know, that if we have to break the bushel in the street and say it's not proper, it's not proper. There has to remain some standard of what a family is. And if everything goes as it does in today's world, there is no standard. So then, Ma said, and what's the noise about? How, how can you uh, begin even to attack the problem of intermarriage if you accept it as a fact and you accept it as uh, something that uh, in many instances is even overlooked? I even had a worse scenario... But that was when I was younger, so I was, uh, you know, when you're younger, you know a lot. As, as you get older, you know less and less. So I was really uh, young then, I think it was the first or second year that I was in the Rabonis. And someone came to me that uh, uh, their relatives uh, were having a bar mitzvah, and the bar mitzvah was going to be celebrated in a non-Orthodox congregation. And what should we do? So uh, I told them not to go. So they said, how can we not go? It's a relative, it's a close relative and everything. And we won't go to Davin there. And uh, yeah. So I said, yeah, I said, I'm not telling you what to do. You asked me what, uh, you know, my opinion. That's my opinion. And what happened is that they didn't go. And because they didn't go, it made such an impression on the other relatives that eventually the other relatives became Orthodox. Now, I can't guarantee that that's going to happen. <laughs> but this is an absolute true story. And it's all based on this Gomorrah, right? Without the Gomorrah, I would hesitate to say anything, because how do I know? But the Gomorrah says that for the preservation of the standards of family... It should be dealt with strongly. It should not be covered over. And even though it's an embarrassment, you know, imagine, you know, you go break a barrel of fruit in the middle of the street and you make such an announcement, you know. Not nice. But we are looking for an overriding value here. And the overriding value is the preservation of Jewish family and Jewish home. And improper marriages, halachically improper marriages, are not the way to secure family or to secure Jewish survival. And Chazal therefore said, Oilo lepose lezaro ulepoge mesmishpachto. Woe to someone who through his behavior uh, makes his generations pasul, really meaning that he hurts their pedigree. And Lepogem is Mishpachto, and the entire family suffers thereby. 
We have a great Gemara that says, the Gemara asks, the, the Gemara was discussing uh, uh, the fact that uh, the Romans executed robbers, uh, smugglers, uh, people that did things illegally. And uh, so the Gemara asked, well, you know, the robber, the smuggler, he's got a coming to him. But why should the rest of the family suffer thereby? In other words, in God's system of justice, when the criminal is punished, so uh, let the criminal be punished. I mean, why does the mother have to suffer? You know, we see always that the, the, the son is a murderer and the mother says he's a good boy. Because that's a mother. So why should it be that the family should suffer as well? The Gemara says a frightening thing. The Gemara says every family that has criminals in the family cover up for them. They cover up. So it's very hard to... Uh, you know, to go against your own flesh and blood. And it's very hard to look realistically at your own flesh and blood. And so what if he's a smuggler? But the Gemara says that since they cover up for him, so therefore they undermine the whole sense of rectitude that exists within the Jewish people, and therefore they are also part of the punishment. So we have here almost a collective guilt not just the guilt of the criminal, of the person alone, but the guilt of everyone around. Because we tolerate it. Now, we could say that about our society here also. We tolerate a lot of things that we know are wrong, that we're embarrassed about. But uh, who wants to get mixed up? Who wants to say anything? But though we who tolerate it, are also tarred by that brush. We are also damaged by it. We are, so to speak, part of the corruption also. And the Gemara is very, uh, very strong in this area. Makes very, very few allowances. Because of the fact that, again, this is the overriding value That's one side of the coin, right? So one side of the coin is uncompromising, right? Now, you have the other side of the coin uh, to protect my family. The Gemara says a case in the Doran that a man comes before the Bezdin and he said, I, uh, I uh, pledge to become a Nozir to take the vows of Naziru to be, uh, uh, you know, to uh, not to shave for 30 days and not to drink wine and to be celibate and to stay away from all troubles. I take all of that upon myself on the condition that I will not reveal what I know about my family. I won't reveal what's wrong with my family. Now, the rule is that we go to all lengths to prevent people from becoming a Nazir. The Gemara says that uh, Shimon Atzadik, the great Kohen Godol, 
never participated in the uh, sacrifice of a Nazir because he said, uh, isn't it not enough what the Torah forbade for you? You've got to make it more yet, right? The, the Torah said that, uh, you know, uh, you can drink wine and you don't want to drink wine. The Torah said that you can you know, take a haircut and be uh, presentable and you want to be on camp. The Torah Therefore, he would not participate, except there was one case. One case, he said, where he felt that the man was truly a Nazir, and he took upon himself the vows of Nazirus in order to prevent himself from sinning. The Gemara says that he was uh, so handsome, and that, that it was uh, like it was impossible for him to resist on his own the evil inclination. And therefore, in order to strengthen himself, he took upon himself the vows of Nazir. So that was the only time that Shimon HaTzadik said he saw a legitimate Nazir. So our public policy is to be against the Nazir. Here comes a man before us, and we can get him out of being a Nazir. We just have to say, okay, so tell us what you want to tell us about your family. The Gemara says just the opposite. Let him be a Nazir. And let him not break the confidence of his family. So here you have an exact opposite of what we had before. Before, you know, you take a bushel of fruit and you're breaking it in the middle of the street and you're saying, you know, my brother so-and-so, he married a woman that he shouldn't have married when we said before that he's a smuggler, you know. And here the Gemara says that, well, don't reveal anything. So, uh, the Meforshim discussed this, the commentators to the Talmud, that's discussed what, to, how to reconcile, if it's reconcilable. Uh, but the general rule is, what will preserve the family? What is in the best interest of the family? So there are times that the best interest of the family is to make a whole tumult about it and to reveal and to, and to make accusations, and that will save the family. And there are times that what saves the family is to be quiet about it. How do you know what to do when? So that we have no instruction book. Because that's true of most of the Torah. And most of the Talmud, certainly, we have conflicting ideas all the time. Different policies. So how do I know which policy I should follow? So if you're blessed with a great rabbi or a Hasidic mentor, or someone to ask, so then their advice could be valuable. But even then, the decision is always ours. And that's really what makes life interesting, is because we're not certain that we have ever made the right decisions. The Talmud tells, that, tells us that regarding Joseph and his brothers. Now, there's a family matter. Why did a brother sell Joseph? What's, what's got into them? They see him as a threat to the entire family. He speaks evil about them. Uh, he estranges them from their father. 
He invents stories about them. He's, he's a danger. The whole family will be destroyed by this 17-year-old uh, teenager who, uh, you know, has no sense of proportion as to what's going on. And therefore they decide that in order to save the family, they have to destroy the brother. So we all know the story. They sell him. 22, year late, 22 years later, they meet him. And at the end, he says to them, Ani Yosef, I'm Yosef. I'm the one that you sold. So in the Gemara, it says that the brothers couldn't, the brothers were in shock. They were traumatized. They couldn't respond to him. So the Bali Musers say, the great men of the Muslim movement, they say what was part of their trauma, aside from the shock of seeing Yosef, was that until now they had thought that they had done the right thing. Until now they were convinced that they had saved the family. And because they were convinced that they saved the family, they were willing to put up with Jacob's grief all the years to see their father weep and weep, and they knew the truth, and they never told it to him because of the fact that they were going to save the family. They were going to save the future generations. Now, all of a sudden, he says, Ani Yosef, here I am, and you all got to come down here, and I'm going to save you and bring my father down, and here's Binyamin, my brother. So then they realized that they made a mistake. Instead of saving the family, they almost destroyed the family. And therefore, they were frightened. Uh, Woe to us from the day of judgment. Because the brothers were going to come to heaven and say, we saved the family at all of this expense and pain and everything. But look, we saved our family. We have a mitzvah. And now the mitzvah turned into an avera. The positive turned into the negative. And the Torah purposely tells us that story to realize uh, that it's treacherous ground that we're on. It's not simple. There are many times in families where uh, there's a child that requires special needs. So many times in such families, the other children, to a certain extent, are neglected because of it. How do you make such choices? How do you know what to do? Now, life is difficult. Family life is doubly difficult. But the overriding value here that Chazal emphasized is that a person has to do what is good for the family. Sometimes it's clear. Most times in life it is not clear. Most times it is confusing. And therefore, uh, counselors, uh, experts, uh, spiritual uh, leaders are necessary to help us, that we should have some sort of idea of uh, which side uh, this matter falls on, what we should do. 
The Rabboni Shalom, the Gemara says, is proud of the Jewish family because it has yichus. Now, yichus in its popular sense uh, means that uh, you're uh, descended from the Rothschilds or that uh, your grandfather was a great Rosh Hashiva or something like that. That's the uh, Rebbe, that's yichus. But the Gemara doesn't, the Gemara is not talking about that kind of yichus. Again, we're going to see here two opposites. J.M. in the A.M., Rabbi Beryl Wine in the middle of a, a nine days lecture for us on the topic of family. It's from the Jewish Values series here at J.M. in the A.M. The Jewish Values series, Rabbi Wine's lectures. Uh, information about all of Rabbi Wine's lectures that have been again for the, oh, the umpteenth consecutive year, such an important part of our nine days format. Uh, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, and um, uh, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. There are many things going on over the next few days, as we've been saying. You don't have to wait uh, till after Tishabov uh, to find activities that are appropriate for this time of year. I know the Nachamu uh, uh, concerts and all the other things are things that people are anticipating, but there are things happening specifically for the nine days in Tisha B'Av that are very important, and I'm very happy we're able to bring them to your attention. Uh, one of them is the program entitled Morning to Morning. It's M-O-U-R-N to M-O-R-N, Morning to Morning. It's happening this coming Tisha B'Av on Sunday uh, at the Ateris Golda Hall on 1362 50th Street in Brooklyn, New York a project of the Kleinman Holocaust Education Center. And with us live via telephone, the founder and president of the Kleinman Holocaust Education Center, that would be our wonderful friend, Ellie Kleinman. Ellie, welcome back to JM in the AM. Good morning, Nachum. Always wonderful to be back and speak with you. I appreciate that. We've had the opportunity over the years to speak about so many important events and organizations. This one is so close to your heart. We'll get to everything in a moment. I also want to introduce... Cindy Darrison, who is the Vice President for Institutional Advancement at the Kleinman Holocaust Education Center. Cindy, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having us on. Uh, Ellie, let's start with you before we talk about Sunday's event and how inspiring it's going to be. Explain to this audience, our community, why it was so important uh, for you to found the Kleinman Holocaust Education Center. Nachum, when this project came up and was brought to me. Um, first of all, as a child of Holocaust survivors, this was always something that was close to my heart from when I was a very young boy, and my parents would talk about their experiences of surviving the Holocaust, and it was something I grew up on and something that I very keenly felt throughout my life. Uh, and the opportunity um, to take this very difficult period in our recent history and educate our current generations about what happened, I felt was, was something that was a necessary thing to do because of a very basic fact that our children and our grandchildren really, by and large, don't know anything about this. You would think that it's not that far back, only 70 years ago since the liberation, that this would be a, a subject of importance of necessity, and that everybody would know about it. And the fact, sadly, is that our children and grandchildren really don't know. And that is the purpose of this, to educate our children going forward in the future that, you know, that difficult period can happen again. And as we look around today in a, in a Europe, which is ablaze with anti-Semitism once more, oh, yeah. we look around the world that looks at the Jew and hates the Jew, 
and is looking to destroy us at every turn and every opportunity, we realize that we cannot rest no matter where we are. We cannot live here in this wonderful Medina Shulchan of America and just, just relax and say everything is fine, the world is fine, because we know that when the pressure comes to bear, whether it's the economy or, or politics or whatever it might be, things can turn on a dime, and we cannot rest. We have to learn from this most recent history that we have to be on our toes, we have to be vigilant, we have to be proactive to be able to maintain our religious uh, identity, to be able to maintain our religious freedom, and to be able to maintain Yiddishkeit in, in the state that we were able to rebuild it to. Well said. Ellie Kleiman with us. He is founder and president, Kleiman Holocaust Education Center. And before we move on to the uh, event on Sunday, um, it, you have seen over the last couple of years uh, this project, as you described it, Ellie, and the, the need to found the center, uh, you, you've seen it get closer and closer to a permanent home, to a real presence in the Jewish community. I mean, you're running events and, and doing things under the banner of the, uh, of the Climate Holocaust Education Center. But as that's going on, you're moving closer and closer to a real a permanent fixture in Brooklyn, New York. That's right, Nachum. You know, it's very, very exciting that all, all, after all these years, we really started this roughly about seven years ago. Uh, when we put together the, the concept of the project under our conceptual developer, Dr. Michael Berenbaum, a well-known Holocaust educator from Los Angeles, who developed not only the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, but other very, very important Holocaust venues around the world. We developed this. We put together this unbelievable, incomparable staff, and it is now a full-blown organization. The site, the permanent site in Borough Park, is now very heavily under construction, and Bezrez Hashem will be completed in approximately 15 to 18 months and open to the public. Um, but it's, it's now, and, and very importantly, we're operating in a full-blown capacity in temporary quarters in the right. basin right. Um, where we have our exhibits, we have our archives, our documents that we've already had between February and, and May, I believe, well over a 1,000. Uh, yeshiva kids of all types, boys yeshivas, girls yeshivas, the Cedish, modern, you name it, everything coming, every type of school coming down and spending a day at our center. Um, and, and it's amazing stuff. But now, Nachum, the most important thing is this local organization, which was supposed to be local, has now become a full-blown international project. Multiple sites that are going to be opening and multiple exhibits around the world. Oh, I didn't realize that. So not only are you completing the permanent fixture in Brooklyn, New York, you're actually taking the exhibits and offering them to communities around the globe? What we're doing is, um, first of all, we are going to, God, God willing, be having another site in uh, Lakewood, New Jersey, on my campus in, in Bexmetrishkovoa, wow. which will be focusing on the archives and documents of Revarin Cutler, Zekatarik uh, Rudraka, who was very, very uh, involved when he came to America during the war and our solar efforts. Um, we're going to have exhibits and displays and, and uh, all his documents. We're also going to be having um, another site in Yerushalayim, um, focused on specifically uh, on, on the concept of the hotel in Yerushalayim for survivors. Um, those are going to be three permanent sites. Where will the uh, Yerushalayim one be? Do we know yet? Yes, it's going to be at the hotel. There's a new building going up at the hotel, wow. um, which, will be, which will house that particular facility. Um, so, I mean, in the best place in the world. 
Uh, <laughs> That's for sure. And then we are already underway with a number of exhibits that have been negotiated with European governments. The first uh, in Belgium at the Karzenbosen Holocaust Museum in Mechelen, which is in Belgium. Um, we are now already, we have um, a project underway where we're designing a, an exhibit, which will be a traveling exhibit starting in Belgium and going around the world about the hidden children of Belgium. And we also have had discussions and we have uh, conceptual exhibits that will be worked upon in Hungary, uh, in Poland, in Auschwitz itself, as well as in Warsaw, um, and um, a number of other uh, things that are under, are under discussion with the Swiss government. Um, and it's just exploding, Nahum. Unbelievable. Exploding. Really unbelievable. Yeah. Whoever dreamt you can get to this point, Kola Kavod. Ellie Kleiman with us. Sunday is the event at the Kleiman Holocaust Education Center. And, and, and Cindy will help me in a second, Ellie, uh, go through the information that people need to know for Sunday. But I just need your comment on this. The program includes a presentation by Pesach Krohn, on the resilience of Klal Yisrael, at the same time, part of the program, a presentation by Sergeant Seymour Kaplan on the, of the United States Army on the liberation of Dachau. Does that sort of sum up your entire mission that are by Krohn and Sergeant Kaplan are part of the same Tisha B'Av program? You're asking that of me or Cindy? No, I'm asking you, Ellie. Oh, you're asking me. Okay, I think, first of all, Larry Pesach Krohn sums up everything. The case of Krohn, first of all, as you know, besides being uh, the Magad, as they call him, is also a tremendous advocate of Holocaust education. He takes many groups. He has a summer group that he, that he uh, takes every summer to, to Poland, to the concentration camps. So he knows the history, he understands the history, and if anybody ever heard Rabbi Krohn speak, he feels the history emotionally, in depth, um, and he knows how to transmit it. But certainly the person to be able to transmit this particular point of our, our program someday would be Rabbi Pesach Kron. Right. The best representative. And of course, uh, the, the other gentleman that's presenting from, from the liberator side, the liberator side of those that came in and saw this horror, um, and witnessed it firsthand, something which, which they could never imagine. So that's the right person to, from that perspective. To come in to see from the point of liberation, um, to represent that, that's the right person for that. Yeah, I really, uh, when I saw both Rabbi Crone and Sergeant Kaplan on the program, I said this is what the Kleiman uh, Center is all about. Cindy Darrison is with us as well, Vice President for Institutional Advancement at the Kleiman Holocaust Education Center. Uh, what do we need to know about Sunday's event, Cindy? What do people need to know in terms of coming on Tishabov and being inspired by the program entitled Morning to Morning? Well, I just want to um, add a comment about Sergeant Kaplan and Rabbi Crone. Sure. You know, Sergeant Kaplan was a young, basically teenager in the Army when he, stationed near Munich when he received orders to drive 10 miles to a uh, city that he thought was just a city. He had no knowledge of concentration camps, and what he saw there was beyond his comprehension. When he saw... He was completely unprepared for the horrors that he witnessed. Right. He came back to America, and he basically shut it off, shut off those memories for 50 years. He did not talk about it, never spoke about his experiences. And only recently he's been speaking publicly, sharing his memories. This is very comparable to the Holocaust survivors in our community who basically for 50 to 60 to 70 years didn't talk about it. Right. And only recently have come forward, and they've been coming forward in such large numbers to us, to our 
museum, to our organization, saying we want to preserve these memories. We want to educate our our grandchildren, our great grandchildren, preserve the artifacts, the documents to educate future generations. So Sergeant Kaplan is going to be talking. Um, Pesach Krohn, Rabbi Krohn, is going to be speaking. And the exhibit that we are showing, mm-hmm. these are objects from our, art, from our archives or objects that are being lent to us for this exhibit. And it's the way we educate the future, through showing these items, incredible items. We have Rabbi Hillel Seidman's Warsaw Ghetto Diary, a prominent figure in the pre-war Torah community of Europe and the chief archivist of the Warsaw Kahila. His diary reflects what Polish Jewry was going through at, the ta- at that time. And then we have never seen before Chaim Yitzhak Wogelenter's diary. Everyone talks about the Anne Frank diary. Right. This is the diary of a firm man talking about the spiritual resistance of Jews during the war. His, his reconciling his, his Yiddishkeit with what he was going through while in hiding, while fleeing the Nazis. His diary survived. Sadly, he did not. The family is flying four pages of that diary in for us to exhibit. Wow. His book has just been published. The book of his memoirs, The Unfinished Diary, A Chronicle of Tears, has just been published. We will have the original diary, four pages of that diary to exhibit. We will also have Dr. Seidman's diary to exhibit. Um, and then for the first time in the United States, we will have on display the Bergen-Belsen Hebra-Kadijah ledger previously seen only in Bergen-Belsen and never before displayed in the United States. This book contains the names and the Yorkite dates of thousands of Jews who died while still in Bergen-Belsen after its liberation. Um, the exhibit is open to women from 1.30 to 2.30 this Sunday. The presentation, the actual program, is from 2.30 to 4.30, and then men will have an opportunity to see the exhibit from 4.30 to 5.30. This is at, all. This is all happening at a Terrace Golda, right? It's all at a Terrace Golda. At, and and uh, tell them about the film, Cindy. Pardon? Oh, uh, the film, yeah. The Terrace Golda is thirteen sixty two fiftieth Street in Brooklyn. Right. That's between thirteenth and fourteenth Avenue. We will have valet parking. The program will include Rabbi Crone, Sergeant Kaplan, and a new video that we have made: stories of resilience. Um, using artifacts from our collection because our educational methodology includes teaching, teaching young people based on objects from the artifacts because from the story of one, based on objects from our archive, because from the story of one, you learn the story of many. So that is the video that we will be showing. That's part of the program on Sunday. Again, the exhibit viewing times for these incredible items. Uh, the women are invited between 1.30 and 2.30, men between 4.30 and 5.30. The program for everybody at Ateris Golden Hall is this Sunday on Tisha B'Av, starting at 2.30 p.m. Or by Crone and Sergeant Kaplan's presentation, plus the video premiere that Cindy just described, will all take place during that program. Ateris Golda is at 1362 50th Street, in Brooklyn, New York. You've done similar programs in the past, Cindy. These are very well attended. Am I right? Yes. Last year we had 1,700 people. Wow. Last year was a weekday. This is a weekend. Right. Um, general admission is free, but reserve seating is $10, and I would advise people to reserve either online at kfhec.org or by calling us at 718-759-6200. All right. 
Reserve seating is $10 per seat. It must be done by tomorrow morning, or general admission is free. Last year, we had to have overflow rooms. We would love to accommodate everyone who comes. That's why we moved it to a larger hall, and we look forward to seeing people. Pretty amazing. Anybody who'd like to uh, attend, the recommendation is that you reserve with the $10 fee online at kfhec.org, kf for Kleinman family, kfhec.org. You could dial 718-759-6200, 718-759-6200. As you heard, over 1,700 people last year, which is absolutely remarkable. Uh, so you want to make sure to reserve as soon as you can to be uh, there on Sunday and to uh, uh, in, be inspired. I don't want to say enjoy. It's Tisha B'Av after all. But be inspired by this incredible program uh, that Ellie Kleinman and this uh, incredible center have put together for Tisha B'Av. Again, 718-759-6200. And we should mention, Cindy, that online there's a chance for people to donate even further. And I know you're always looking and you have an incredible um, a group of people that have been dedicating uh, different parts of the center. So anybody who'd like to speak to you about that, they could use the same phone number and hop aboard this very inspiring project. Right, and I would also say for those families in the community who have collections of documents and artifacts that have been in attics and basements for 70 years, this is the time to share it with future generations and to let us incorporate it into our educational program. Our director, our, our curator of acquisitions, Meryl Maybrook, would be happy to speak with you about how we can do that, how we can digitize and make these collections available for education and for academics to study and how we can preserve your family's memories. A lot of people don't even realize how much priceless stuff they have, you know? That's right. Pretty amazing. Ellie Kleinman, Kolakavod. I'm sure you'll be there Sunday to greet everybody, and um, uh, I'm sure this will be a, uh, a much-talked-about program in the community. A lot of people will be inspired on Sunday. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. I greatly appreciate the opportunity to talk about this important event. A pleasure. They're expecting close to 2,000 people, everybody. Imagine that. It's just a, it's a tremendous service for the community, an unbelievable opportunity to be educated and really an unbelievable oppor- opportunity to be inspired on Tisha B'Av. Uh, 2.30 is the program. Uh, women's viewing hours of the exhibit, 1.30. Men start at 4.30 after the program. Information about all of this, kfhec.org or 718-759-6200. And as you heard Cindy say... She's highly recommending that you uh, take advantage of the $10 reserved seating uh, because of the expected overflow crowd. So get to that today and uh, reserve. We'll do a few more minutes with our barrel wine, and then we'll uh, take care of some of our community calendar and start wrapping up a Thursday. A reminder that tomorrow on this radio program, uh, Malcolm Holmline will join us. He is the executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Weekly update starts tomorrow at 740 right here at JM in the AM. All right, Beryl Wine on the subject of Jewish values, the topic family at JM in the AM. Uh, the Gemara says, Woe to us from the day of judgment, because the brothers were going to come to heaven and say, we saved the family at all of this expense and pain and everything. But look, we saved our family. We have a mitzvah. And now the mitzvah turned into an avera. The positive turned into the negative. 
And the Torah purposely tells us that story to realize uh, that it's treacherous ground that we're on. It's not simple. There are many times in families where uh, there's a child that requires special needs. So many times in such families, the other children, but to a certain extent, are neglected because of it. How do you make such choices? How do you know what to do? Now, life is difficult. Family life is doubly difficult. But the overriding value here that Chazal emphasized is that a person has to do what is good for the family. Sometimes it's clear. Most times in life it is not clear. Most times it is confusing. And therefore... Uh, Counselors, uh, experts, uh, spiritual uh, leaders are necessary to help us. That we should have some sort of idea of uh, which side uh, this matter falls on. What we should do. The Ravoni Shalom, the Gemara says, is proud of the Jewish family because it has yichas. Now, Yichas, in its popular sense, uh, means that uh, you're uh, descended from the Rothschilds or that uh, your grandfather was a great Rosh Hashiva or something like that. That's the uh, Rebbe, that's Yichas. But the Gemara doesn't, the Gemara is not talking about that kind of Yichas. Again, we're going to see here two opposites. I want you to leave this lecture thoroughly confused. <laughs> and I have the great ability to do so. So, Yichus in the Gemara means that there is no uh, illegal, non-halachic marriage in the family. That's what Yichus is. That's the bottom line of Yichus. And the Gemara says uh, the Kohanim, when they got married, would check back certain amount of generations. And the Gemara said that if there were certain presumptions regarding uh, a family, so then that was su- sufficient. You didn't have to check anymore. But Yichus is important. And therefore the Gemara says that the Rabboni Shalom, so to speak, cho- chose the Jewish people because we have a book of Yichus. And when the nations of the world came to complain that God is not fair in somehow choosing the Jewish people and dealing with them, so he said, Bring me your Yichus book. Well, the nations of the world, uh, the Yichus book is pretty uh, blotched. And that's why it says, Bring to God, show me your families. Show me your sense of families. And therefore, uh, Yichus became very important. The Gemara says, Ashkina shore rak al mishpochas miyuchosas shevi Yisrael. The Shechina descends only on Jewish families that have Yichus, that do not have within their family improper marriages, improper relationships. And then the Gemara raises the ante. The Gemara is much in favor that when a man looks for a spouse, 
he should marry the daughter of a Talmud Chochem. Le'olam yimkor odom kol lo, the Gemara says, a person should sell everything that he has. So it doesn't mean only to sell everything. It means he should overlook many things. V'yelech v'yisa bas Talmud Chochem. And he should go and marry the daughter of a Talmud Chochem, of a, of a Torah scholar. Rashi there says a terribly practical reason. Rashi says because if he dies, she'll raise the children to be Jews. Others give more, uh, what shall I say, more attractive reasons. And she has uh, good manners, she saw Torah in her house, etc., etc. But the Baz Talmud Chochem is, uh, is supreme. Right? The Gemara, by the way, has harsh things to say about people who marry for money. That's a Gemara that is famous by not being taught. And uh, the, the Gemara, by the way, uh, you know, uh, the Gemara is very hard-headed in these matters. The fact that our world is uh, 180 degrees opposite from the Gemara doesn't change the Gemara. Doesn't change what the Gemara says, and doesn't change what, what what's right. So, yichus is important. Well, I'll tell you a Gemara that, that that you know that to me it always shocked me. The Gemara says, "Laolam yidbak betovim." A person should always look to come into a family of goodness, of good people, righteous people. What's the proof? Sharei Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu. Shenoso Bas Yisro, that he married into the family of Yisro, so Yisro's a Ger Tzedek, and Sipor is certainly a Tzitkonius, but it's a Gornit Geholfen. Yotza Mimenu Yonason, he had a grandson that was a priest to idolatry. It says in the Tanakh, Yonasons, it says Ben Menashe, but the Nun of Menashe is written outside the line, on top of the line, because it's Ben Moshe, but the Tanakh didn't want to say it fully. So therefore they said Menashe, but they put the Nun on top, so if you understand, you understand. If you don't understand, you don't understand. But Moshe Rabbeinu has a grandson, I mean, think about it. Pel Peadaberbo. The greatest of all human beings. So he has a grandson that's uh, a priest of Odazora, right? The Aaron, his brother Aaron. So Aaron made the eagle. Aaron, uh, you know, Aaron is blemished. Aaron himself, while Moshe is not. Shenoso Elisheva Basaminodov, 
he married the daughter of Aminodov, the prince of Yehuda, the father of Nachshon. And therefore, Yotzah Mimenu Pinchas. So his grandson is Pinchas, that's going to be Makari Shem Shemayim. J.M. in the A.M., Rabbi Beryl Wine, on the topic of family from the Jewish Values series, incredible material, which we're proud to present during our nine days format here at J.M. in the A.M., uh, information, 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Final minutes on a Thursday here at JMNAM. Reminder, tomorrow Malcolm Holmline will join us. Our weekly update starts at about 7.40 tomorrow morning. Ninth of Av is Shabbos, which means the Tisha B'Av observance will be on Sunday. Matis will have appropriate programming live Sunday morning during JM Sunday between 7 and 9 a.m., so make sure to be tuned in. We're here Monday with our regular format already on Monday morning here at JM in the AM. Reminder that the um, that the Mincha service at the Isaiah Wall is going to be uh, across from the United Nations this Sunday at 2 p.m. Bring your talus and tefillin. It's at 2 p.m. at uh, First Avenue between 42nd and 43rd Streets in New York City. Uh, also, I remind you that the uh, incredible Project Inspire will again feature... On uh, our stream, the amazing Charlie Harari at the end of Tisha B'Av. As I said earlier, we never expected that this would become one of the most, uh, not just sought after time slots, but one of the most, um, one of the time slots uh, most paid attention to, um, during the year. 7 p.m. on Tisha B'Av. I'm not talking about Lail Tisha B'Av. I'm talking about Tisha B'Av day, 7 p.m. Uh, Charlie Harari will present a very inspiring program with the uh, staff of Project Inspire. You'll hear it uh, on the website, jmnam.org, nachomsigl.com, on the NSN app, on our listen line. It's 7 p.m. this coming Sunday night to close out Tisha B'Av, the final two hours to close out Tisha B'Av. This has proven to be a very, very popular segment the last few years. Again, we're proud to present it, and you get an opportunity to hear it this coming Sunday, 7 p.m., uh, toward the end of the observance of Tisha B'Av. So make sure to be tuned in and be inspired. It will be difficult uh, not to be. And a reminder that our friends at the OU will present Kinnis on Sunday morning, or by Weiland or by Weinrib are putting the finishing touches on their presentations. They'll do that Sunday morning at OU.org, another opportunity to really have an inspiring and incredible uh, experience this Tisha B'Av. <coughs> Our brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope. Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM dial broadcasting live in the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jmnam.org. Wraps up a Thursday nine days format here at JM in the AM. Plenty more tomorrow morning starting at 6 a.m. Make sure to join us. Kudos to those from New York and New Jersey and from places outside of this area who were part of the big rally yesterday in New York City. Kolakavod. Let's hope it helps, everybody. I'm sure it did help. Maybe not immediately, but hopefully it will help in the long run at least. Uh, Until tomorrow, Nachum Siegel reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.